Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I am looking to bring up the concept of my bonus, Zach. Uh, where Where is my bonus? Didn't you promise me a bonus in our two-year anniversary episode for all the great work I've done at the restaurant? I'm entitled to my share, right? Are you, you, are you trying shares. to take uh, you're take, trying shares. to take this away from me? See, this is this is why I made it so you can't edit the spreadsheet, Zach. I'm the full owner <laughs> of the restaurant now. <laughs> no, well, I guess we'll have to get to my bonus later, maybe off mic because it's uh, gonna involve a lot of fighting, I would imagine. But today, we are continuing on with our series, which I think we have to start by saying it's gone through many iterations, and I don't know exactly what we're calling it anymore. Before this month ever started, it was going to be the 30-plus years later sequel series, and that's kind of what we did with Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Um, We were going to do Tron and Tron Legacy. Clearly, that's not the case. Um... I know in the Blade Runner episode, I called it something like the Dusty Property series, but now I don't even know if that can stand for what we're doing these last two uh, Mondays. So I guess the best way to say it is that this is just, uh, we've cherry-picked a few Ridley Scott movies, right? Something like that? Didn't we say that last week? (laughs) No, I don't think they're cherry-picked. I think it's kind of one of those things where we kind of, I kind of realized that now wasn't the time to talk about Tron. And I think the idea of like doing two Ridley Scott movies where not obviously he didn't, he wasn't involved with directing Blade Runner 2049, Mm -hmm. but the notion of going back to these franchises, these classics that he created many years later in trying to do a weird, like quasi remake slash sequel, which was very bit, which is still very Ah. big in the last like 10, 15 years is kind of what this series has become. Okay, maybe something like uh, Ridley Scott Revisits. What about that? Yeah, Revisited okay. Ridley. Because, you know, Dusty Property, I think, worked for Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, but I, I don't know. I'm, I can't really say that Alien is dusty because it's had so many sequels and spinoffs with, you know, the Alien versus Predator, I'm guessing, or I'm thinking of, between the original and then the prequels we're going to discuss next week, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's weird. Like, Alien is a classic. But it's a, it's an actual popular classic as of like it's it's a classic without any sort of like footnote. Whereas Blade Runner is a cult classic. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And that's I think a great way to kick off this discussion about the original Alien movie. Um, we did a few months ago, a few one month ago. I don't know. We're in a time vortex. Everybody knows that. But we. Uh, finished up a while back our Unexpected Love series, where we had movies that Zach loved, Rob loved, but it was unexpected to some extent. This is one of those movies that Rob absolutely loves, and when he talks about it, everybody gets 100% why. I fucking love Alien. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I'm so glad we get to talk about something that isn't Blade Runner related. (laughs) (laughs) So... I actually, this wasn't something I had in my childhood. Um, You know, when I was growing up, uh, a lot of the the classics, in air quotes, movies that I saw were because of my parents. And, you know, my dad loves Back to the Future. 
um, you know, that was something that I had right from the, the get-go. Both my parents loved Star Wars, the original trilogy, and I had that at a young age. It actually took me until one of my years in undergrad to actually see Alien for the first time ever. Because one of the people I lived with is a huge fan of not just this movie, but the franchise as a whole. And, you know, even the, the, the weird ones, I guess. What's the resurrection is the fourth one, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seen. And, and I think he even likes that. And he, he had them all on his hard drive. And, 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 you know, there was one time where he was like, oh, I really want to watch Aliens. And I was like, oh, Aliens. I've heard of that. That's with the Xenomorph, right? And he's like, well, yeah, it's with, with more than one Xenomorph. And I didn't really even know the history that Aliens is the sequel. And when I told him this, he was like, well, we got to watch Alien first. And we watched it, and I fell in love with it. Uh, Zach knows I'm not the biggest fan of horror, even though I don't really think of this as a horror movie. This, this just fell right into place, and I've loved it ever since. I think I watch it, you know, at least once a year. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of those examples, to Rob, of a perfect movie. Not only a perfect movie, but I think this is a big dick swinging movie like they could do stuff in 1979 and they showed off what they could do in a great way and i'm sure we'll have to talk about this more with the documentary that zach and i watched or rob watched some of because he fell asleep but overall i i just had to get that out there my context with it and you're going to listen to the exact opposite of the first two episodes of this month rob is going to gush about this movie <laughs> so be prepared that's a rare thing on cinema is to hear Rob gush about something. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, other than the Hudsucker Proxy <laughs> or, or Animal Collective. Or I was, I was just about to say Animal Collective. <laughs> so I guess I'll throw it over to you, Zach. Um, what's your context with this movie? And I maybe the more important first question is um, you, you only have two choices. Uh, greatest movie ever or most fantastic movie ever? <laughs> Well, my my history of this series <clears throat> goes back to my childhood, where this is where Rob and I uh, diverge. I've I've been aware of this movie, what feels like for pretty much ever. Okay, at least a series, because I remember obviously going back to the days of me and my nephew. He always had the larger video collection because his parents liked having movies. Where my parents were never there. There again, media is the equivalent of hamburger. It was to it was to them. It's not. It's nothing to treasure. You watch something and you forget about it 10 minutes later, unless it was really good. And then when you, when the next time it's on cable, then you watch it. But other than that, movies are not meant to be collected or cherished. They're fleeting entertainment at best. So I remember I'd go over to his house. <clears throat> I remember seeing the alien VHS box art, which is everybody knows the, the iconic alien poster art of like the grid, the green grid, the bottom, bottom and the glowing egg. And like just the like straight line, what well, I don't want to say font fonts not doing it justice of just the alien logo, just like those yep. really like just 180 degree lines. And that like, that was always my first memory though. But like, I know like, my nephew loved this series. He loved it so much. Mostly. I think he really liked aliens. Cause I think there was a part of him that liked the character of Newt. but that's oh, neither here okay, nor there. Okay. Well, well, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the sequels. Cause like I said, we're going to the 30 years plus to some extent next week. We will have to talk about my thoughts on the sequel to this movie, but that's for a little later. So keep going. Um, so yeah, but I remember, I think the first time I ever, like, I wanted to get into these movies at a young age, but I never could. I know at one point I had the VH, well, I just recently uh, donated my VHS copy of Aliens to Barry. 
And I remember I bought that. Cause I remember buying that at Target. I remember kind of pleading with my mother to get that for me. And I got it. I think I watched like 10 minutes of it. I'm like, this is boring. And I turned it off. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I'm laughing at the fact that you called him Barry. And we could have used his real name with no connection to the other stuff. He's just Barry now. <laughs> He's just Barry now. But I think if I also use his real, but I think if I also use his real name, I give away his pseudonym. Um, I give away his alias. But, uh, yeah, we did, we did not pick a great alias. That's a good point. No. <laughs> no, we did that on purpose, but but uh, I hope that Barry appreciates it because I the I think twisted I, web we weave. <laughs> yes, Barry, if you ever get to your get to the copy of Aliens I sent you, just know that it was watched maybe once, twice, like tops. <laughs> um, uh, so no, I really didn't think about this series again until Alien versus Predator came out in the summer of two thousand four. I remember seeing that with my father. And that was actually a really fun weekend for movies. There was there was a lot of hurricanes going through Florida. That was like two weeks before we moved. My parents like I think I've never gotten so much pity from my parents in my life when it came to just kind of getting everything I wanted. Imagine like being a divorced kid, but like your parents are together, but they like they just kind of gave you everything in a span of like a month. It was it was a weird surreal time. But I remember that is I want I wanted to see Yu Gi Oh the movie. This is the part that connects to Rob. I yeah. wanted to see that, that came out the same weekend as Alien versus Predator Yu Gi Oh the movie. Oh, and I, okay. and I, I wouldn't have known that because uh we just me and my dad saw that movie i think twice and then at the end of the second viewing my dad just literally went up to the counter and said hey can i get those cards and we had like a whole box of them <laughs> <laughs> that's not something your father would do um but no i we actually it was after going to Yu-Gi-Oh on saturday at toys r us we went directly to um uh, to the movie because I wanted to see it Friday and we couldn't because it was a hurricane. That, that Wednesday I think was Hur- Hurricane Charlie was hitting. Um, I think you can go back to the if anybody wants to uh, fact check me. And I remember we got to the. I can still remember going to the movie theater and there were hordes of people. Like this is one of those movie theaters where the box office was outside and you had to go into oh, the theater sure. to actually um, go in. And I remember there, I've never seen so many uh, such a huge line. And I actually remember them. This is the first and only time I've ever seen this happen in a movie theater. They announced it over the public address system. All the tickets for the two o'clock showing of Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie are sold out. <laughs> and it was like, oh, and the movie that we went to was a really nice movie theater. It's still there. I don't know if it's still nice now, but it was in Oldsmar, Florida. And it was actually a relatively new theater. It's only a couple of years old at that point. And I remember my father's like, well, we're down here. What else do you want to see? I'm like, I want to see Alien versus Predator. And I'm like, okay. So we went and I, I, I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. And I think I, now I think that movie's horrible, but I get why. <laughs> um, no, it's horrible. It's, it's really bad. Like, it's I like, I don't think it, I've ever seen it. And if I did, I don't remember it in the slightest. It's not, uh, I haven't watched that movie in a while. It's, it's crap, but it's enjoyable crap. Um, there, there, we'll get to the history of that movie maybe next week, but. I remember that, and then, like the very next day, my nephew wanted to see it, and I saw the movie again the very next day, which is one of those <laughs> things that, like, I've always been. It's the first time I've ever done that, seen a movie twice. Actually, no, it was it was the second time I've ever done that. The first time I ever did that was with the movie M Night Shyamalan Science, but that's a story for another day. Um, look Ooh. forward to the summer two thousand two series, folks. We will definitely talk about Signs in that series. Um, but yeah, he saw it and he loved it. And I remember even sitting in the theater for Alien vs. Predator knowing where the ending was going. If you know that film, folks, you know what I'm talking about by the ending. And at that moment, I kind of became an Aliens, Aliens fan. I remember like that very next day, I was at Toys R Us. I got like, this big like box set of like, the Alien Queen from Aliens, Come, some of the like Predators figures. And um, then when they announced Alien vs. Predator Requiem, I was so excited about that. And uh, I saw that. I think it came out Christmas Day, 2007, strangely enough. Okay. Um, but 
yeah, strangely enough, that came out on Christmas Day. But I remember the, the very first chance I got after Christmas, I saw that movie with Sal, and I love that. And I guess um, this is a hot take. This is a really hot take. Uh-oh. To me, the best Predator film is Alien versus Predator Requiem. And I'm not even saying that as in like my favorite film. I'm saying that objectively. The first Predator movie is boring and it's not very good because it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. There's and it's well at, it's well into like Arnold Schwarzeneggerism. We're like, oh, nothing's going to stop him. So there's literally no tension throughout the entire film. Gotcha. There's no, okay. there's no, that's the thing that's always bothered me about people who love the first Predator movie is that like there's no tension in the movie because you it's like um oh god it's the Steven Spielberg quote he's like when I was casting Jaws Charlton Heston wanted to be Roy uh oh god whatever the Roy Schneider character's name is and he's like I love you Charleston baby but if I cast you everyone's gonna know the shark is just chum waiting to be made. Like there's no ten- <laughs> when you cast a certain actor in a role, you know like how the plot's gonna unfold. Like, sorry, you have not convinced me otherwise. Um, but yeah, so I love that movie. I'm actually in my hands holding my xenomorph Xen- at xenomorph toy from Alien versus Predator Wacrium. and I- that's why I really started to get into the other movies. I can still remember the very. I think it was the next day after seeing Requiem, I went to Borders and bought all four of the movies, like in the super duper like deluxe combo set. I think I spent all of my Christmas money because Rob can tell you, like anytime Borders had a movie, you were spending like double the markup for it. Ooh, hell yeah! (laughs) So like, I think I spent, I think I literally spent like like over a hundred and fifty dollars on all these movies, (laughs) and I. I, I enjoyed it all. Like I, I really, at that point, really got into all these movies, and I've appreciated all of them for different reasons ever since. In 2012, I bought the Blu-ray, like the Blu-ray set, because it was like ridiculously cheap. Like I think Amazon we wanted. Like, it's funny. I in 2007, I spent 100 like 50 dollars on all the films. And then five years later, I got them all on Blu-ray. I think for 20 dollars. <laughs> nice. Um, it's one of those really painful moments being a, yeah. a physical media collector. And it's one of those things should have, I should have known better. Like now that you can pretty much get any movie you want, like if you wait like a month, you can get it for like a third the price. Mm. Um, but but that's a story for that's a that's a god uh, foreshadowing for another day. But yeah. uh, no, ever since then, I've always appreciated all these movies. I I know we'll get into comparing this to Aliens at some point in this conversation. Um, I for the record, I don't think I have a favorite. I think I'd have to say Aliens because I like the aesthetic more than any other movies. Um, Alien Resurrection is like a corny mess. Um, okay. Alien Three is an incomplete film. To anybody whoa, who whoa, says whoa. Alien Cubed, yes, okay. Alien, <laughs> Alien to the Third Power, <laughs> Alien to the Third Power. To anybody who says that's a good movie, you don't understand how movies work because that is a movie okay. that literally had like forty writers, and you had a director that was literally like badgered. And bruised throughout the entire production. And then eventually during editing, he said, F this, and he walked out. Ah. And so you have a film that literally just is a mess to this day. Like, there's an alternate cut to that film called The Assembly Cut. And people always refer to that like, oh no, the theatrical cut's bad, but the assembly cut is so much better. They literally changed how the alien is gestated in the different cut of the movie. It goes from. No, 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 no. There's a lot of things. Oh, but, oh, oh but, okay. But that's just to show you how drastically different the movie is. Gotcha. And that, like, like imagine in this movie, instead of John Hurt being the alien, imagine if it was Jones the cat that that just stayed the alien. <laughs> okay. That that that's what the difference is between the two cuts, and people still somehow think it's a good movie. I I don't get it. Um, 
Aliens is fine. I, I, I like the problem is that like the people who compare and contrast Alien versus Aliens, I've never understood that. It's very similarly to what Rob and I talked about in our Terminator series. Yeah. Terminator One versus Terminator Two. Terminator One is a horror sci-fi film. And mm-hmm. Terminator 2 is an action sci-fi film. And yeah. the same can be said for Alien Aliens. They are compl- totally night and day. I, I agree completely. I, I think they are very different movies. Um, you know, you, you can't compare them because they are, like you said, night and day. Um, but I guess I'll get out of the way now. Aliens is almost total garbage as far as I'm concerned. I hate that movie. And that's why I've never seen three or cubed or resurrection because I just gave up after the nightmare that is James Cameron's Aliens. Yeah, and, I guess and honestly, I, if you want to know why I don't like Aliens, go back and listen to our Terminator Two episode because it's yeah. it takes all of the good stuff about yeah. the horror of the first movie and throws it out the window. Well, that's the genius of Jimmy C, though. It's like, Jimmy C, like... <laughs> genius. I'm put, we're well, putting that in air quotes. No, because that's, like, that's what he understands, like, the commercial side of his brain. Sure. Is that, like, he, he knows, like, he knows how to reinvent the wheel. And that, even if you don't like it, you gotta give him credit for that. He took a uh, sci-fi horror film and reinvented it. And, and that was kind of, like, nobody had ever done that before. That was, like... You, you never, that's never been done, but it hasn't really been done pro, done in that same like vein successfully since. And I, that's where I'll I give can't you that. forsake him. I'll give you that, and uh, I think this just goes back to our discussion on Blade Runner 2049 last week. You make a good point, but I don't like it that you're making a good point, Zach. <laughs> that's fair. I, I don't, I, whereas I actually like, there's, like I think uh, Blade Runner 2049 has things to say. Aliens has nothing to say. It's just a popcorn film. It's a very oh, well-made, yeah. slick popcorn film, but I I do not feel compelled to defend it. The only way I defend it is if people start crapping on it in the mm-hmm. sense of like, like, oh, this is an objectively bad movie. If someone says, I don't like this relative to the first one, that's fine. The people who's I know like there's some argument like, oh, Jimmy C ruined the xenomorph. And I'm like, no, like he's like, think about it. If you're gonna introduce a bunch of like giant, like badass space marines, you gotta give them something you gotta create a horde for them to go against. And that's yes. where like you gotta up the ante and you can't forsake him for that. That's called good screenwriting when it comes to like balancing out your heroes and villains. And that's where I have no problem with it. But again, I I again I have I don't have a strong opinion on aliens. I would, I, I, that's the thing. I like the series, but I like it in short bursts. Like aliens is one of those movies. I'll watch once every 10 years beyond that. I don't have any interest in ever revisiting it. Alien. I could delve into alien probably once every two to three years. Cause I sure. think it's, it's weird enough. And there's enough stuff going on on a film craftsmanship level. that There's always something new to process. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And I guess since, of course, next week, I think the, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, Jonesy is out of the cryostasis. Uh, <laughs> we are not talking about aliens next week. We're doing the 30-plus years later prequels. Um, I, I'm with you on aliens in the sense of, well, if you have to do it, that that's how you do it. You have a group of people versus multiple xenomorphs. That That makes perfect sense, like you said, from the screenwriting perspective. And I don't have an issue with that. I have the issue with... 
James Cameron continually creates the stupidest characters in existence. And that's my problem with that movie, that all of... Well, one, my problem is that Sigourney Weaver, for no reason other than the movie makes it so, she needs to take care of this little girl who's completely expendable and useless. And then you have the oh, dumbest Jesus. Marines in existence. And I, I know I said this to Zach off mic, I think, last week when we talked, but it, it's the stupidest scene in any movie I think I've ever seen where they say, hey, Marines, we know you're, you're trained Marines. Do not fire your weapons down here because it will cause a gas explosion. And they're like, fuck you, we're Marines. We're going to shoot our weapons anyway. That's the dumbest thing, just to create tension and violence and action. And like I said, go back to Terminator 2. I, I hate that movie as much as I hate aliens. <laughs> I, I disagree with that assessment. I know he talked about that, but I, I'm not going to... I'm not gonna rob Alien of of precious recording minutes Good. to defend Good. a film. No, I disagree with Rob. But oh yeah, of I, course. I mean, that, that should I'm be on our time on our T-shirts, you know. <laughs> yes, after the other pull quotes that we have on the T-shirt, the T-shirt, because, the T-shirt's extra long. Yes, because I don't. I'm, I agree with you. We shouldn't rob Alien of any discussion. I do have to ask: Did you get to see the Yu-Gi-Oh movie eventually? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yes. I have to wrap that part. Actually, my father. Because again, this was back like, like. Oh God, the weird like calm before the storm of moving to New York. We we went back that Monday. I actually went to the movies three days in a row. I don't think I've ever done that before. And I remember my father was like, I asked my father, being like, "Can you buy two extra tickets so I can get all four? And he yep. said, "Sure." And he actually bought bought four tickets so I could get the complete set. I, I forget what cards it was. It was like Pyramid of Light. Oh, Pyramid Sorcerer of Light. Dark- Sorcerer, Sorcerer Dark, Dark Magic, Magic Wadapon, and Blue Eyes Shining Dragon. I'm one of the people, I won't go into this because that's a whole different episode of, or a different podcast. I was one of the people for two years after that movie tried to make Wadapon a thing. And then in 2006, oh, yeah. in Shadow of Infinity, they released the card Treeborn Frog, which made Wadapon obsolete. <laughs> So yeah, tune in, tune into uh, the Patreon exclusive where Rob discusses his professional history with Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> That's a thing, folks. That's not an embellishment or an exaggeration. That is a legit thing. Rob could probably talk hours about if he was given the time. Ooh yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, did see Yu-Gi-Oh, and uh, I I don't think about that movie very much. It's, I remember seeing that and being very underwhelmed by it, being like, oh. It's fine. Oh yeah, I I do not it's remember fine. the movie in the slightest. It was it was a vehicle for me to get the cards <laughs> because yes. if Zach remembers, my father and I were buying literal cartons of packs, and you know to get cards and because like I said, it like Zach said, it's not a joke. We were professional Yu-Gi-Oh players. <laughs> indeed, folks. Indeed. But I'm glad uh, I'm glad you saw it in theaters. Good. Good. I did. Um, but yeah, Alien. Um, I have no idea where you want to delve into this. There is literally. I, Right now, I'm thinking of dozens upon dozens of ways to attack this. Or, um, yeah, I like. Uh, I, I guess we. I guess I, again, Rob loves this. I think this is true. This is a classic with a capital C. Um, I think there are like, even, like watching it today. I don't think it's perfect. I think there. I think it's probably the closest you can ever get to perfect for a movie like this. There are some goofy things in this that just kind of irritate me. There's a little too many jump scares. With the cat. The cat thing, I, Jones the cat shows up out of nowhere a couple of times to kind of stoke the audience. And I'm like, I get it. Like, nobody was doing this mm-hmm. sort of thing in 1979. And obviously, the jump scare would be beat to death in the in subsequent years. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't hold that against the movie. Um, but no, for the most part, it's it's 
it's it's very efficient storytelling. As I was even yes. watching this in preparation for today's recording, I was shocked a couple of times. I'm like, oh wait, like I kind of forgot certain things. And I'm like, wait, how did they get? How does Kane get back to the ship if he's incapacitated? I'm like, he had to go like rappel down like three stories. How'd they get him back up? And then like next thing you know, you have Tom Skerritt and Veronica Cartwright just hauling him back to the to the Stromo. And I'm like, perfect, because it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how Kane gets back to the ship. It's just as long as he gets back to the ship to bring the uh, the face hugger on. That's all that matters. Um, there's a lot of that in this movie where I'm like, God, like, like there's there's certain things that like not that all people in the audience need to learn that like you don't need to explain everything. Sometimes just doing just going through the motions is enough. Absolutely, and I and I think that is uh, a great place to start because one of my notes is exactly about that idea and. I know there's a different movie that Zach and I have never discussed on this podcast, but we've talked about possibly in a Mon Stober, um, uh, Pumpkinhead. So when when I watched Pumpkinhead way back, I think around last Mon Stober, to see if we want to talk about it, one of the things that I told you, Zach, was I love the fact that we actually get a a huge portion of the movie dedicated to why Pumpkinhead exists again and why it's after these kids. And I think this movie kind of falls into the same boat where it's a horror, but it's not just, oh, here's a creature. We got to run from it. We spend that first hour of the movie explaining why this thing is on board and attacking these people. Maybe not why it's attacking, but at least how they came into contact with it. And I love that. You know, I like that a lot better than just the nonsense of, you know, oh, wow, there's this thing and we got to fight it. You actually get the backstory for it, and I think it does a great service to the movie. And I think while maybe you agree with me on the concept of this, I know that you had some issue with Pumpkinhead um, because of that reason, because it took so long. Like, okay, we got to see this kid's this this guy's kid get run over by the motorbike or whatever, and like we have to go see him go to the witch and stuff like that. But I put them in a similar category in terms of storytelling for sure. Um, I know what you're getting at, and I definitely picked up on that in this recording, recording, in preparation for this recording. And the thing is, is that it's clever, but it's a very fine line you have to walk because having a movie called Alien and the alien not being a genuine presence in the film until the last third, Mm -hmm. and maybe even arguably made the last maybe 25% of the movie, is very risky. And that's where I think that's kind of the brilliance. I know we'll talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff for this, but I think that was kind of the brilliance of Dan O'Bannon and his writing partner. I got pulled back. I I know Dan O'Bannon on top of my head, but I don't know the other guy, Um, Ronald Schuster. And that was the thing. So, like, if you're going to have an alien movie, you can't have people running away from an alien for two hours because after a while, you deplete the tension because you know, like, okay, eventually one of them's going to repel this thing. And that's where I think like something like Predator is somewhat inferior to this because they're both very similar movies, but y- you don't take Sigourney Weaver for being the action hero. Like if yeah. you're watching this movie for the first time, you look at all the other characters, and Ripley pretty much isn't really a main character until halfway through. Well, that's it's one not... of my favorite aspects, is that she's almost in the background, you're, and you don't know who to focus on until it really gets going in that third act, absolutely. Exactly. It's not until pretty much, you can kind of assume she becomes a main character when she refuses to let them in after they go out to inspect the derelict uh, ship. Mm-hmm. And But no, I oh, think that's the... Yeah. Cl- 
quarantine procedures. How prescient for this time that we're recording this yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What kind of thing? I need a clear definition. An organism. Open the hatch. Wait a minute. If we let it in, the ship could be infected. You know the quarantine procedure. 24 hours for decontamination. I wasn't lost on me. Oh, anything that relates to that, we should play the uh, the what will want sound. Like anytime we have that, anytime we say the words like Corona, it's the Corona horn. Yes, (laughs) Corona self distancing quarantine. Like any of those like now like buzzwords. Yeah, we should like it should be up there with like the annihilation sound and the goat scream and stuff like. Yes, it should be up there. (laughs) Oh, right on. I love it. Alien, great movie, new sound effect. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Introduce a new sound effect to the Sam Hotties uh, can. Um, but no, I think that's the, cl- the, the the genuine, the most clever thing about this movie that nobody ever learned from, was that if you're going to make a alien haunted house film, which is essentially what this is, and I know I'm not the first person to, to draw that sort of analogy, you can't make the alien running around the corridors be the majority of the tension. You've got to make you got to literally make every single part of the film groundwork getting you there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and that's the thing. There's so much just atmosphere and ambiance in this film that's getting you there, and a lot of stuff that's not even meant to be the focus. Like I know this is one of those archaic things to say nowadays, but like the setting is its own character, yeah. and that's very much what it is. Whether it be the Nostromo, whether that be was it L? I don't even think we know the like LV four two six. I don't think it's four two six. Yeah, which is that? I don't think it's used in this movie. It's it's not until Jimmy C's film, right? No, I, I think, think they, they. I think they, they mention do? it. I think so. Oh, is it? Uh, okay. I'm trying to remember because it's in my notes, and I took my notes just while just watching it. Oh, um, okay. And Whatever. I I was looking for that because it is notably different from LV two three three, which is the Prometheus one. Yes, that we'll, we'll get to that next week. Yes. Um. But uh, no, I think that's the thing is that everything in this movie is leading you to that. And all the characters are unique, both in character trait, which they don't really, a lot of them don't get their moment to shine. Because like Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stan are just kind of there. Um, John Hurt that, is kind of there for the most that's part. Probably my, my, the Harry Dean Stanton is probably my biggest disappointment um, even though it's still minute because I love this movie and I think it's perfect, that's the one character, probably because I'm biased and I love Harry Dean Stanton, that I want more of him, you know? Yeah, and I get it. You guys sit there split attention different ways. I think most of the characters, I don't want to say are bland. Like, obviously, Ripley becomes much more of an important character toward, like, the halfway mark. Yafit yeah. uh, Kodo is great. Like, and he, he sucks the air out of any scene he's in. Um, Ian Holm as Ash is a very unique presence. Yeah. Like a very like a very unique presence to the point where I don't think I really can't think of another like Android performance in any other film that that is I don't even know the right word for it. Almost I don't want to say I guess eerie. Like he gives a very eerie performance in this, especially especially after we have our uh moment where Sigourney Weaver like kind of like like throw, throws him against the wall. Um, oh, I love that scene. Yeah. We'll get we'll get to that. Um but yeah, again, Veronica Cartwright, she has a pretty good moment when the alien gets gets the jump on her. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, Tom Skerritt, he's he seems to be he. You can kind of tell. He says this in the behind the scenes documentary. He's like, "Oh, we knew we were making a classic at the time," and I'm like, "I don't get that vibe from your performance." 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think from what I've seen of behind the scenes of Tom Skerritt, he seems very uh, he has a large ego. It seems, um, but I do love me a good Tom Skerritt, absolutely. And I'm gonna bring it up now because it's gonna have to happen, Zach. Tom Skerritt is the guest star in my second favorite episode of Law and Order's Vu of all time. He plays a judge that tells the woman that he's presiding over the trial in to kill their child. Seriously. He is great. It's my second favorite episode. Season 5, episode 24, Poison. He plays Judge Oliver Taft that they have to take down because he's a corrupt judge. Tom Skerritt. Check it out, everybody. And like I said, that's my second favorite episode. My favorite episode is season 10, Wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Um, All right. Uh... Can we do a very quick Law and Order aside sidebar? Keeping oh, with I the mean, judge theme, of course. And <laughs> you, it is you don't have to ask it, me. <laughs> and it's applicable to Cinemodies because it relates to R. Kelly. So we're 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 crossing the streams here for a second. <laughs> I love it. You you, my, you have got my appetite uh, intrigued, Zach. <laughs> all right, At, and Rob's going to know exactly the episode I'm talking about. It's a Savu episode. And I forever it was, it's the very beginning of the episode, and it involves a photographer raping a model, and, like, the, the photographer's assistant's taking pictures, and that's, like, the rest of the, I, I, you, I would imagine you know what I'm talking about, right? I, I believe I know exactly which one you're talking about. It's a later one. Uh, yes. So I think that's season 15. Um, is it the one where the, the photographer's son gets involved? I had no idea. Oh, I okay. No you're I didn't watch okay. This is the opening. And the best... I can't say best part. The most intriguing (laughs) part is that while this is happening, they're play while this rape is happening, they're playing the Lady Gaga R. Kelly song, Do What You Want to My Body. Do what you want. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, could this be any more on the nose? Could this be (laughs) any more on the nose? Like, like like, I have to wonder, was Rob the person doing the music for this episode? Like, Rob, did you sneak into the Law & Order, like, post-production offices? Like, so, like, were you there that day? Like, did you, like, was the guy who normally does this taking a whiz? And you're like, they won't notice this. As you drop the track into, like, the uh, the file. I pulled a Steven Spielberg and I just hung around the Zvu set until they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I-, I think the best way to answer your question, Zach, is just like we've discussed how... Um, in the future, I'm going to go back in time and become Vernon Chapman. Uh, on seasons 11 to, I think, the midway of season 14, maybe all of season 14, one of the main producers of SVU is literally someone named Speed Weed. <laughs> that is also me going back in time. And then to answer your question, yes, me as Speed Weed, the, the co-executive producer of SVU in those seasons, is putting that music in there. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. But, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I had to bring, I've been meaning to bring it up for a while now, but I'm glad. Um, yes. Okay, so season five, <laughs> okay. episode 24, <laughs> Law & Order, Judge Oliver Taft, played by Tom Skerritt, tells Casey Novak, played by Diane Neal, that she oh, needs geez. to wear a skirt in his courtroom. He is so fucked up. Oh, it's great. By the way, Miss Novak, when you appear in my courtroom, I would appreciate you are dressed appropriately. By that I mean in a skirt. 9 a.m. tomorrow, counselors. Good old Tom Skerritt. (laughs) 
Good old Tom Skerritt. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I think a lot of the characters in this, again, I think they all serve their purpose. They're meant to be fodder, so you can't make them all interesting. Um, of course, yeah. They, they do have to get picked off one by one, absolutely. Yeah, but no, I think a lot of them, though, because I know, because I have to ask Rob, we didn't talk about this beforehand, is that there's a director's cut to this as well. Yes, and I have never seen it. All right, because I remember watching this, okay. and I remember, I, I I was watching it today. I'm like, oh, isn't there a scene where Veronica Cartwright like smacks Sigourney Weaver? And I'm like, yeah. Then it didn't happen. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like that's like like where is that? And that's the only scene I can remember that was a different version. Okay. And I think we've come to learn from the Blade Runner conversation that like Ridley Scott isn't allowed to make more than one cut of his film. <laughs> because, <laughs> that, that because like he'll, he'll just keep he'll just keep releasing more and more versions until eventually Deckard becomes a replicant through just like different cuts <laughs> until until Ripley's a replicant. <laughs> Essentially, remember they're they're in the same universe according to Ridley Scott. Yeah, Blade yeah. Runner takes place before all this. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't even want to think uh, about that. <laughs> no. As Ian uh, Holmes says when they reanimate his decapitated head, he's an admirer of purity. So am I when it comes to this movie. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, no, the thing about okay, that's again the characters are all fun. Not fun, but they all serve their purpose. And do we want to delve right into Ian Holmes is, is Ash? Do we just want to just rip that bandaid off? Because I feel like yeah. you go ahead, you go I, ahead, I think, you tell me what you I want to go in this. Because before we jump into that, I do, I did want to read uh, my first few notes because I watched this movie for the ten bajillionth bajillionth time uh, in preparation for this recording, and I'm just, I just want to read my first few notes because I think it, I think it just encapsulates where we're going to go with this movie, and we'll dive into each of these things individually. Um, uh, the, I guess the way to preface this is that when I started watching this movie again and, you know, the whole, that slow crawl through space and the, the word alien slowly shows up, I had a, um, Key and peel moment. If you remember, Zach, in our Key and peel discussion, we talked about how, um, the sketches where they would play the two valets and literally just pick a movie or an actor and gush over them. And like, and then it, I think you even said that it showed up in what Ducky and Bunny and Toy Story or something like that mm -hmm. and that that's kind of my first note was i was having a key and peel valet moment because in all caps i wrote this movie is my shit and then the <laughs> next note as the credits are rolling harry dean stanton is the fucking man john hurt is the fucking man ian holm is the fucking man yafet kodo is the fucking man sigourney weaver is the fucking man victoria cartwright is the fucking man tom scarrett is the fucking man <laughs> Jonesy is the fucking man. And finally, Dan O'Bannon is the fucking man. That literally, I wrote that the other day while watching this movie. Did you really? I did, yeah. It's in my notes. If, if ever, you know, um, I don't know, the Cinemati's restaurant finally gets closed down, we can sell off our memorabilia. I feel like my notes will become a point of high, uh, like a high auction point. Because I'm just sitting there, just writing them, writing this and saying it at the same time. <laughs> I love everybody in this movie. I love everything about this movie. And I think you're right. We have to talk about Ian Holm. Because every time I see this, from the first to the bajillionth the other day, it still gets me. The reveal that Ian Holm is an android is so fucking cool. 
And I want to compare it to, it's kind of like the reveal at the end of The Sixth Sense. You know, when, when you realize that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, you can go back and watch that movie again, and you kind of see the mastery of M. Night Shyamalan's directing and keeping that under wraps, but it makes perfect sense. Like, I'm thinking of the scene where, what doesn't, I haven't seen Sixth Sense in so long, but I think there's a scene where, like, Bruce Willis sits down with the wife or the ex-wife, and, you know, he doesn't touch anything on the table. He doesn't even move the chair. Like, it makes perfect sense that he never interacts with the real world. And when I go back and watch Alien, knowing that Ian Holm is the android, Ash is the robot that is, you know, the one kind of guiding this whole early wake up from cryostasis to get this creature, it, it makes perfect sense because he is always working when they get, you know, Kane, John Hurt, back on the ship. He is always working to protect that facehugger, to protect that alien, to be able to study it because he's an admirer of purity. And that's one of the, the glorious aspects of this movie is that the reveal comes so late. It's so amazing. But when you go back and look at everything prior, you kind of get the sense he is that robot. He is this, you know, following orders type of character. And I think it's perfect. I, I would say, yes, like it's there, his actions. But there's a couple mm-hmm. of things there when it comes to, like, uh, and I get it. They, they want to make it convincing to the audience. And he, like, that's the thing. Like, they have him drinking coffee and eating. And I find that just a little too distracting. Okay. Okay. Because it's just the idea that, like, okay, this is 1979. Like, the idea of a human, oh, God, like almost a one to one human replica. And I get it, like, he has to eat, again, you can't have him not eating, because then people would be like, it's kind of, like, weird, this movie is in a weird way, almost ahead of its time, in that, like, the cinema sins people would have a hard time attacking this, because it Mm -hmm. does everything right, but at the same time, though, to, like, I get him maybe drinking, because maybe he's drinking some sort of fluid for his own benefit, who knows what that could be, but a couple times you see him at the the breakfast table, quote-unquote, eating, and it's like, oh, okay, like, I don't know, like, I feel like... Ash being a robot is a fantastic reveal. It's a great plot yes. twist. But I feel like it almost comes out of... Like, and this is more just me kind of like armchair quarterbacking. I feel like it comes out of nowhere. Like, and I, and I don't dislike it for that reason. I'm just uh, stating an observation, not a criticism. I, I, I agree with you, but I think that is why, for me, it works so well as a reveal. Because I'm a big fan, and I think this, this podcast, the history of it, uh, uh, illustrates this, is, you know... A reveal should never be overtly or m- primarily foreshadowed. I like the fact that this is kind of out of nowhere. That's what makes it, you know, work so well. But at the same time, it kind of goes with the idea that it it benefits the movie. It's not a reveal just for a reveal's sake, you know? Sure, I gotcha. And, no, it, it I does. Do, it... I, I do want to point out that I do like those, those breakfast table, dinner table scenes. I, I do really enjoy the fact that um, the the blocking of those scenes, which uh, I think is the right term for it, you know, we have a lot of people on one side of the table, and then almost Sigourney Weaver is out in her own corner, and Ash is in his own corner as well. It's never really they're all congregated together. We're mm-hmm. getting this this cinema cinema cinematographic foreshadowing <laughs> of where the movie's going to go. I don't even know if that's the right term. Cin- cinematographic, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but no, but I love the, that the aspect. Film. Well. 
Oh, sure, sure. No, no, it's there. And that, no, it's there if you know where to look for it. But it's yes. very subtle. And that's the thing, too, is that this movie is subtle. It's weird that Ridley Scott would kind of lose that in later years, where he kind of felt he had to hit people over the head with imagery. And Deckard's a replicant because he sees unicorns in his sleep. Are um, you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I guess, like I said, and that reveal is fantastic. I would have loved love to have been in the theater in 1979 when this was playing and you get and you get him trying to shove the the dirty magazine down her throat when she's like passed out i uh, yeah kodo just ba- bashes gets his, the baseball bat. yeah i that's one of my exact notes i'm glad you brought it up i uh i said in one of my notes verbatim i'm taking a page out of zach's book i wish i could have seen this in theaters it would have been amazing to see this on a big screen I don't even think on the big screen. Like I, there's certain movies I think work. I don't be wrong. Like a big, like I think at today's day and age, the big screen is almost like I don't want to say a mirage. Maybe like fool's gold when it comes to movies. Fair, fair. Because I don't think a big screen is what makes a movie. I think a lot of people. I think that's kind of like a uh, a misperception or misconception, maybe. Because mm-hmm. I think what makes certain movies interesting is the audience. I think certain mm. movies can transcend the big versus small screen issue. I think, I think one of my favorite examples of that is Gravity. I don't, did, you still haven't seen Gravity, have no, you? No, yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen Gravity, no. Gravity is one of those movies that, like, I remember seeing that, as Rob knows, twice in IMAX. And when it came out on home video, I'm like, God, am I going to lose something like, when I watch this? And it's like, no, it holds up. For me, at least. I, I would imagine Rob probably has problems with that for Lord knows how many reasons. But it's I, it works. And I think certain other movies that are very bombastic on the big screen don't exactly translate to home like video consumption. You, oh, like, you, okay. you need that bombast. And I think Alien, I think seeing Alien with a crowd that's never seen it before on the big screen would be a lot of fun. Like, this would be a great, like, intro to cinema film course to watch with a bunch of people who've never seen, which would be rare. It'd be very hard for us to find a group of people who've never seen this before. But I think that's where it would be interesting. I, I think you, you could have just as much fun showing this to somebody for the first time as long as they're engaged. Whether it be on okay. a cell phone, whether it be on a portable DVD player from the mid-2000s, or even someone's home theater system. I think it's a matter of just how engaged someone who's never seen this is, rather than just the presentation of it. That, that's a fair point. I think where I'm coming from is, you know, since I've seen this movie so many times and I love it, I, I really would have liked to see the detail on a larger screen, like even the beginning when you just get the, the camera slowly moving through hallways as they're waking up from cryo sleep and lights are flickering on. And, and, and there's so much detail I feel put into another thing I love about this movie is that our characters just are just pushing buttons haphazardly. And we don't know what they do as an audience, but our characters are so good at their job. They know exactly what they're doing, at least what the movie's portraying. I would have loved to see that on a grander scale than just my 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 home setup, my TV, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then also the the noises as well, like the whole kind of, you know, last bit where it's just Sigourney Weaver in the alien. And she she tries to make the ship blow up and goes to the escape pod, but the alien's there. So she has to go back and stop the ship from blowing up and. I, I would have loved to get that surround sound deep kind of blaring in my ears. That's where I'm coming from with the big screen type of thing. But I, I see what you're saying, absolutely, is that oh, there's sure, way that. more to this movie than that, for sure. Oh, sure. No, I, I don't mean to say that like, like anything else. Rob knows my appreciation for the um, 
for the the theater going experience if done right. Because like I would like, oh god, the the I don't want to go too far away from Ian Home um, Ash, but when we get that fantastic. Fantastic siren sound that we get. Yeah. And we, we get we get a couple of times in this. And we get a lot at the very end, but it is just oh, that is such a like it's a siren, but it's so beautiful. It's beautifully chaotic, and I <laughs> love it so much. Like I, I don't think I think Rob's vaguely aware. When I went to college in Albany, we had these things uh, that are just oh god, the tunnels. Do you remember that, Rob? The oh, tunnels. Yes, I think yes. they, Yep. Yeah, I visited uh, SUNY Albany in my college search, and they they took us through one of the tunnels or told us about them. But yeah, oh, I'm very aware of the uh, underground tunnels at, at Albany. <laughs> but I remember the first time Sal took me in those because he knew where they were first before me. And okay. the whole time, all I felt like I was on the Nostromo. It was hot and <laughs> muggy, and it was like dusty and dirty. You had these like all these like just like yellow like maintenance lights. And I remember being like, we shouldn't be down here. There's going to be like a xenomorph. And it's like, I'm not sure how much Rob remembers. That was over 10 years. That was what? Over 10 years ago now. But like, there's yeah, that all must this have been 2009 when I was there. Yeah, exactly. And there's all this like piping and tubing. And it's all like super industrial. And it's like, I like, like there's something that's going to pop out down here. HR like, Giger is going to pop out. <laughs> exactly. I remember at one point, I actually told Sal about this. And I'm like, we need to get the air alien horn like siren sound yeah. and we actually played it walking to class one day like we nice. played it and it's like and it's like yeah and i'm like this is Oh, it's that beautiful, like chaotic, a chaos. And I'm not sure if I've ever told Rob this. That at well, it's not there anymore because Disney ruins everything. But at Disney MGM Studios, now Hollywood Studios, there used to be the Great Movie Ride, and it had a bunch of this like it was really miscellaneous movies. Like it really never made sense what movies they licensed for this thing. Sure. But one of them was Alien. And you Ooh. went through the corridors of the Nostromo. Oh. And you had like like maybe maybe I'll send like it's not worth having Rob watch this now. But it was like one of the oh God, it was a very they did not pump a lot of money into the animatronic of Sigaruni. Okay. Like it looked like it looked like a mannequin dressed up with, with the costume. But you have her there with the flamethrower and the xenomorph like popping out of the ceiling. And it's one of those like it's so cheesy in retrospect. But if you were there, like in person on the ride, it was a fantastic recreation of what it must have been like to be on that set. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It was, and I've always loved that. Like, I, I think that's my probably my probably my favorite part of the movie is just that, like, just that beautiful chaotic nature of her just running back and forth. Oh, oh, yeah, and I think you know it's a it's one of the best examples of show not tell where you know. That last bit, there's almost no dialogue. It's just we know what she's doing and what she's trying to do because the movie has done a masterful job of setting it up. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to get back to uh, Ash. But, yes, I just want to point it out real quick before I, I lost that, that train of thought. Uh, but, no, the whole thing with Ash, no, I agree with you. It's there. It's very subtly there. Yes. And and like, I, like I made the Sixth Sense comparison, you don't really know it until you are aware and go back and watch it, which is which is a good – even though you know, Sixth Sense is a discussion for another day in M. Night Shyamalan, but I think this movie does it really well in that same regard. 
Yeah, and I have to say, like that whole ass reveal. Like I know this movie's claim to fame is the chestburster scene, but and I get it. That is a unique way to introduce like one of the most iconic movie villains of all time. Like I'm never going to take anything away from the chestburster, but I think the ash scene is inf- like all of Ash's scenes. Like once he starts to lose it, is is I think is infinitely more spooky and eerie and creepy than anything with the face with the the alien xenomorph. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, at the start of this conversation, I said something along the lines of, I don't really see this as a horror movie. I see it more as a suspense movie. And I think that Ash character adds to that suspense exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's weird that people do not hold that day. I'm not the hot day. Should hold that that scene is high regard as the chestburster. Because there's really, I can't think of another sequence that, like, that's like that. Like there's nothing like I can't think of another horror movie. No, I can't. Rob doesn't want to call this a horror movie. I can't think of another moment that pretty much in any other movie similar to this on genre that would that would even come close to that whole sequence of even like oh, the very yeah. end. Even the very end is so beautiful. Again, it's beautifully haunting. It's like Ash. How do we fight it? It's like what's the exact quote, Rob? You probably have it memorized. He says he says something like you can't. It's the perfect being. You know, it's un- undefeatable. Something like that. Yep. No, what's but okay? I gotta look oh. it up right now. Okay. Um, it's oh god, the exact phrasing. Okay, Rob, talk about something while I look it up real quick. Tell me more about what you like about Ash as a character. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love the fact of the reveal, and I love the fact that you know, um, we get it out of nowhere. And I've always thought that it was absolutely harrowing that his form of I don't know attack against Ripley is to shove a rolled-up magazine into her throat. Like, that. that is one of the thriller aspects of this movie, is where it's not like, oh, you know, we talk about, like, Jason has a machete, we talk about Freddy's got his knife, fingers, whatever. This is just kind of like, you know, a, an unnerving aspect that a robot would think of. Be like, I need to stop this human from breathing, let me shove this magazine into their mouth. It, it's, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> Well, okay. and of course, I think the movie as well is, um, you know, it, the um, the artistry of it being, as you said earlier, Zach, a dirty magazine just adds to that layer for sure. Well, that's what I have to ask you is that there's there's other subtext to this, well, as absolutely. in the fact that like it's there's something almost there's a sexual desire that he has for her. Yes, yes. Something that uh, since he's not human, he can't really get a grasp on for sure. Yes, and that's that's what I, that's the element of this I find fascinating is that there's almost like a sexual violence nature to what he's doing to her. Like it's not just simply the fact that like she's trying to impede his directive of saving the xenomorph. Or at this point, I don't even know what it's called. I don't, do they even have a name for it in this? No, no, I don't think they ever ever use the word xenomorph. It's just the creature. I think is what we get. What like Yafet Koto calls it at one point. Yeah. And that's where I have to wonder, is that, like, is is there a level of, I don't want to say sexual frustration, because that's something that, that's more of a contemporary term relative to, like, when this movie was being made. But that's the sort of vibe. Like, I think that's a whole other layer to this film that can't be ignored, considering that you have, all, like, we haven't even talked about just the idea of how the face hugger 
impregnates John Hurt. Like, mm-hmm. I think that there's like that's the thing about this movie. This is the type of movie that works pretty much on every single level it's attempting to. I think oh, when we were yeah. talking about Blade Runner 2049 last week, you and I were like, I, or my argument was like, Rob, you can't attack a movie for work or at least attempting to work on the level it's trying to. And I think this is not just a movie that's working on the level it's trying to, it's excelling on every level it's operating on. Absolutely, because, and I think that's an element of this film. Everybody gets so hung up on the eight, and not, I might hung up. I don't. It has a negative connotation. I don't intend it for it to be that way, but I think everybody's so hung up on the HR Giger stuff of like, oh, the the sexual design of the alien, the face hugger, all that sort of stuff. And I think there's the layer of Ash and Ripley that's never really. I guess don't be wrong. There's articles about it out there. But not to the same capacity as the other stuff is the more iconic elements of this film. Because yeah, I do absolutely. think that's what I think that's what makes the attack on Ripley by Ash so much more disturbing is that there is that like very sex almost like a very abstract sexual nature to it. Because again, when he is trying to like when we're holding on Ash's face as he's rolling up the magazine and then trying to put it in her mouth, on the left side of the shot, you see all the dirty pictures that mm-hmm. that Yafit Koto's character put up. Yeah, yeah, and the that, nudie pics, and, that, yep. <laughs> and that's deliberately in frame for a reason. Oh yeah, I and I think you know that that's something I definitely did want to get to in this discussion, and I think you have brought it up is that you know there is this in comparison to our Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner discussion, where we were talking about well, what are how are the all these people getting such deep meanings from this film? Where this is the opposite, where I I get where these sexual ideas are coming from whether it be the impregnation of men through the face hugger whether it be the foreshadowing of you know john hurt who is the one who gets impregnated being the first person to wake up from the cryo sleep and experiencing that birth and where he's later going to give birth to the face hugger or be it the interaction between ash and ripley like you said that sexual nature it like you said it excels on every single layer for sure Mm. Yeah, I think that's really why this this is as profound as this. Yeah, and I mean, even I, I think you know, once again, once you, uh, I guess, once you've seen this movie as, as many times as I have, um, when when we get the ship landing on the moon, LV four two six, and then they they kind of you know detach um, some little ship from the main spacecraft. They they call it the umbilicus, like an umbilical cord, like it's really hitting you. In, in those ways where it's like, you might not have noticed it, but your brain did. And it's it's amazing. Mm. Yeah. And I even, like, I found the exact quote now. The final okay. quote by him, I forget, again, I don't have the whole thing in front of me. I'm on stupid Rotten Tomatoes. But it goes back and forth between him and Ripley. He goes, I can't, I think he, I think Ripley asks, like, is there any way to beat it? And he goes, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. And just yeah. the, like, like, like we'll, we'll, we'll insert the clip, but the clip doesn't do it enough justice. Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. Survival. All clouded by conscience, remorse. Delusions of morality. Look, I'm, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. 
Like, it is just, like, the most hauntingly, just spooky, eerie-ass delivery, especially, like, how we're seeing it. it. Clearly, it's Ian Holmes sticking his head through a hole in the table. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, clearly, yeah. that's the, what the it is. The movie magic is, uh, once you know it, you can't not see it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the parts where the effects are kind of clunky. But other, in an otherwise perfect film, I'm willing to ignore that. The only other really clunky effects moment is when um, the alien gets, like, when Ripley blows it out of the, uh, the shuttle's da- uh, airlock and it comes oh. right back and, and you actually hear it go clunk against the side <laughs> of the thing and you can yeah. tell clearly yeah it's like okay that's clunky but i'm willing to, again willing to forgive it but no it's just like that entire sequence with ash at the very every when he finally snaps it's like wow like and i know prometheus and alien covenant go really heavy into that they they go deep into like the android like what's it's thinking it's it's sexual and just Deep desires. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's ability to live, you know, indefinite yeah. lifespan versus mortality, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff I find um, I find fascinating. I really do. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's oh. unique in that sense. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Spo- tune in next week, of course. But spoiler alert, Rob very much enjoyed Prometheus. <laughs> shockingly. Shockingly enjoyed Prometheus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Rob. So what, where do you want? Now that I got my piece out, where would you like for us to go? So, so I think I, I think I do want to talk about because it is the kind of the, the high concept part of this movie is that theme. Once again, like I said, you know, we didn't get it from Blade Runner. Neither of us did. Um, it's something that I've come to love about this movie, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. And I know it's even it's become so uh, it's permeated the concept of this movie that I even think there's you know a whole section on the Wikipedia page for this about the idea of the alien impregnating men. But I wanted to get the sense of, if if that kind of how you see this movie, because whether or not it was fully formed by me or partially formed, and I got the sense of it more, one of the things I really like about this movie is it's not just sexual violation. It's, it's something sexual that we can't experience because I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it again, Zach. Spoiler alert. <laughs> if you don't know, Zach and I are male. We are physically incapable of getting pregnant until, what is it, Junior? The Arnold movie when he gets yes. pregnant? Until that technology comes around, Zach and I do not have this ability or this possibility, I should say. And as I've watched this movie and thought about it over the years, that's one of the more horrifying aspects of it is that we don't know. Any man does not know what it feels not to be pregnant, I'm not saying that, but the possibility of getting pregnant, that something can be injected into you and physically change your body and your life's outcome. And that's where I think the horror of this movie really lies, not in the, oh, there's an alien chasing us and we have to avoid it and try and kill it, and it's picking us off one by one. The horror is in the the realization that this movie is portraying something that we will literally never understand as a woman does. And I think that's also the second part of this. I want to know your thoughts on that opinion. But the second part of this is that's why a woman, Sigourney Weaver, Ripley being the lead of this movie, works so well. Because she does understand it. And 
I guess before I get further into that idea, I want to know if that's something that you've thought about with this movie before or picked up. And and maybe if you haven't, how has that kind of how does that sound to you with the concept of this film, if that makes sense? Um, I knew you were hinting at this. And I think prior, like we were talking about doing Aliens a Choice. Yes. Um, I've I've never like, I've thought about that element of it and how just how like bizarre and perverse a notion that is mm-hmm. um in a real world sense not in the context of the film um i've never viewed the film on that level i i because rob said it's, it's genuinely an unfathomable thing for a man to think of that being impregnated with a monster yeah, that will exactly. that will kill you from the inside um, especially also as we get in this movie when they uh, when john hurt uh kane has the face hugger on him and they're trying to get it off they're like we can't do it one because it's literally like could uh, in, intertwined itself it's giving him oxygen it's giving him life and then with the acid that it bleeds it's it's an inextricable fact that Kane is infected with this thing once it attaches himself to it yeah and I think that's again that's part of the mystery of this because you don't just again it's that's the beauty too it's not like the xenomorph is what impregnates the person mm-hmm. it's the face hugger which in of itself is a very sexual creature beyond what the xenomorph is. Oh yeah, absolutely. When they get it off of them and they're doing the the surgical stuff on it, it's like you know this that is clearly you know genitalia imagery. Yes. Oh yeah. There's oh, that, there's Zach a lot of likes that. when I say genitalia. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> genitalia. Uh, no, <laughs> no, because that's the thing though. Because there are so many there are so many layers to this film. It's really hard to kind of like track them all yes and that's just one amongst many mm, and that and, and, and think about it, and like we've talked just about this sort of stuff and like we haven't talked about any of the production things of this film we haven't talked about the derelict ship the the space jockey before prometheus kind of ruined that um you have all that stuff like and that's the thing about this movie that like you could Spend an entire episode. Probably could spend probably at least we could probably do a fort month on this movie. Oh, probably yeah. one of the very few movies you could genuinely pick a different layer to it and delve into it every single week and not run out of uh, discussion topics. Um, it, it, no, it, but, it's a it's a piece of art, you know. It's something to be dissected, with somewhat of a pun that is, you know. But yeah. it is that deep, absolutely. Yeah, and that's the thing that makes this. No, I want to say frustrating of a conversation, but you kind of kind of do everything at once. But to go back to your point, though, it's like yeah, there you do have those ele- yeah that element of the film that's just the, the 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 everything is so oh god the and obviously a lot of that has to do with H R Giger's designs beyond this film. Obviously, yes. he didn't the the xenomorph in this, even though it's the first on screen realization of it, it's not the first time we've ever seen that before. Um in his artwork prior to this film, I mean back in the 70s and even earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that's that's definitely an element of this film that cannot be ignored. And I don't think it is ignored when it comes to film scholars. That is something that's clearly at the forefront, is that sort of the the, the xenomorph element of the film. And I feel that's something that almost, it's a shame that it overshadows the ass stuff. Because I think that's just yeah. as important. And even though it's a different avenue, it deserves the same amount of scrutiny and analysis, but it just doesn't get it for some reason. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, I guess the critics have to focus on what they want to focus on, and and just as the annals of history have given us just the the majority, 
being this this concept, you know, this this uh, male sexual violation and impregnation. But you know, there is that other stuff there, and uh, and you know, maybe I guess with that being said, maybe that's more of what we should focus on because, of course, like I said, there's even a section in Wikipedia about it. You can read to death about that sexual nature of this movie, or at least from the the impregnation perspective. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, again, you could even go into the whole thing, even with the space jockey, like the fact that you have the eggs and all the eggs are there and they're under a, a fine layer of mist. And there's a very, like, yes. it, oh yeah, like, even that, like, that's the weird thing. Like, I guess I should have mentioned this earlier is that like, I remember getting the, the DVDs back when I spent some ridiculous sum on them from borders and they had like all this like artwork of the space jockey in there. Now what we call the engineers, thanks to Prometheus and alien covenant. And I remember yes. being like, wow, what is this? And there was literally no, like, there was nothing on the internet about it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing, because nobody knew what it was. It was, like, it was exclusive to that first film. It's just a visual. Yeah. Yep. And it's there to deliberately be perplexing. It's there to, it's a visual enigma. It's bizarre yes. solely for the sake of being bizarre. And that's even more unique for a blockbuster. Yeah, that you just have something that's going to make the audience question. You know, it's it's uh, something I love about movies and, and media in general is when something is given to you, to the audience, to the viewer, just to cause a question, you know? And I, I love that stuff. And at the same time, I, I'm sure we're going to get into this a lot more next week, but I, I think, you know, maybe a few minutes ago, you used the word ruined by Prometheus. I think I loved this movie more after seeing Prometheus. But if really? you don't want to get into that, save that for next week, you know. I love the fact that we got the same ship, that 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 engineer who's uh, in the ship's, uh, I don't know, commander seat, porthole, whatever you want to call it, porthole. Um, like, I, I, I'm kind of all on board with this franchise now, you know? <laughs> uh, um, uh, I haven't watched Prometheus in a while. Like, again, I liked Prometheus when it came out. I think I do like Prometheus still to a certain extent. But I do think Prometheus kind of robbed the space jockey and that sort of stuff of, of its essence. Well, I, I guess that's fair because, you know, really, I, I had never really used space jockey as a descriptive term. Now it's engineered to me. It's always, like we said before, just been a visual, that type of thing. It's been a, it's been a set piece to add to the mystery of this universe. Yeah, and I think... Prometheus did the cardinal sin, which I hate, of we're going to explain stuff that we're going to start filling in corners of the universe. Fair, fair. And that's, I understand and that's, what you're saying. Yeah. And that, I do not like that. Like, if you're going to, again, my philosophy is for every mystery that you answer, you have to create at least two more. Mm. Like, if you're going to explain where, and I, I know Prometheus, again, that's Dane Bolin, I can. Damon Lindelof. We're gonna have to talk about that aspect too when it comes to Rob. Oh, next but, week, get ready for Lost Talk. <laughs> oh God, more, more Lost Talk. Um, but yeah, get that, ready that, for, that. Get ready for incest talk. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I love I love when we have inside jokes that our audience won't get. Zach, that's that's good podcasting, uh, right? God. Oh God, <laughs> we should say the incest joke has to do with Star Wars, and it's like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> No, I totally get what you're saying, and uh, it'll it will come up next week. But you know, I think in in terms of this movie, what we're discussing is the uh, the intrinsic nature of the the world building that it does while giving us mysteries, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why another element of this film. I think there's so much going on that it's it's hard to tr again. That's what would be interesting to show this to a normie. 
Like, have you ever done this? Have you ever done this as a late night movie with with fellow ignorant people? No, no. Anytime I've watched this movie, uh, it's either been by myself or with people that were well aware of it and also loved it. And I think we'll get into this more with our late night discussion. Um, but I, I think that that is this is fertile ground for late night to really show this to someone, you know, saying it is, you know, this classic, like you said, with a capital C movie and getting their thoughts on it and getting that that feedback for sure. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, I guess my question is, you know, with, with my opinion of the the male sexual violation, um, is there is there some greater theme that you had in the, your history with this movie that wasn't that? Because like we said, there's so many layers. Was there something that maybe you've seen this movie as more? Because, you know, it's become kind of in the back of my head. Whenever I watch this for years now, it's been like, well, hey, this is that movie about the the, uh, you know, unfathomable concept of a man of a man being impregnated was there something else that you latched onto uh as a whole or was it kind of just that that depth that kept you going with this this film uh i've always i've never consumed this i could even say maybe not even to this recording consume this as an art film with depth this has always been the first chapter in the alien franchise that's how i that's how i'll always view this first and foremost like i've come to appreciate this movie over time yeah and i think at one point i was going i back i think i've i think i talked about it in our shining episode i was good i did my shining presentation in college one of my ideas was to do a juxtaposition between 2001 and alien as in like the clean Mm. future versus the lived-in future and i was gonna do that um, like I said, this movie's always I've always been intrigued by this movie. I it, for over ten years now, but it's always been a franchise film first. Because it's all it was. It was okay. designed to be commercial. Like it's one of those films I don't want to say backed into being profound, but that's kind of like like they said, they were gonna make this as a in the behind the scenes documentary. They were gonna make this into a Roger Corman film. Yes, that was very interesting in that aspect. Absolutely. And that's kind of the issue is that, like, this movie, I think they even like, again, this is where I part maybe we segue into the behind the scenes production stuff. Is that, like, this film is almost too clever? Like, the script was almost too clever for, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say too clever for its own good, because obviously a lot of why the film works are Ridley Scott's visuals. So I don't want to put that 100% on the script and story. But I do think this is one of those films that definitely is a greater than the sum of its parts. So, so would you say that kind of in the long run you've seen this? I know you said franchise starter, but have you have you are you saying that you viewed this as a horror slash thriller? You know, as you said, haunted house alien type of thing. Uh, I that's the weird thing though is. I guess it's just my history with this as I started off this conversation is that like I was always again my nephew was the one who always loved this yeah and so and I was and he always had like I remember him being obsessed with alien versus predator the video game it's weird when you say your nephew without the word we need to bleep out before it it's I know everybody unnerved (laughs) I know but I feel like one less thing to edit we we put enough edits into these episodes now let's take let's take one off the table and plus you know what people want Zach just wants to say we'll put this clip in for more work for me to do not for him to do (laughs) exactly I'm kidding kidding, (laughs) that's why folks I let Rob do most of the editing now so I don't want to make his job any harder um but uh yes so that's the thing though like this has always been 
the franchise first. It's yeah. kind of like I, it's kind of like why I would imagine a lot of people who grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek. It was oh this novel thing first, then it grew into the franchise. Whereas it's always the franchise for me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get what you're saying. And, that, sure. and that's why when that's why people when people attack Alien versus Aliens, I never really understood that because it's like well they're just. They're they're definitely better than this, the later chapters, mm-hmm. and no one's ever going to argue whether Alien Three or Resurrection has, holds a candle to the first two films. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I've always seen it just more as they're they're products, and that's okay. and I think I think Alien is definitely the one between the two of them that transcends that. I think Aliens is definitely more of a product than Alien, mm-hmm. um, because even like when it came to Alien, the the one we're talking about right now. They made like like I think it got recalled almost immediately, but they had the toy. Like there was like a big like the I think at the time he was called Big Chap. I think that was the unofficial name for him, the Xenomorph. And they made oh. that and that got like recalled immediately. It's one of the more it's relatively rare to find one of those nowadays. But it's this was a film that was always again, this was this was in the wake of Star Wars. Like they say in the behind the scenes yeah. stuff. The same studio that grew the same oh god, I don't want to say regime, but the same yeah, regime works. The same regime that grit greenlit Star Wars and reaped the success of that film greenlit this. I think in mm-hmm. the behind the scenes thing, they say that like nobody wanted to touch this film, then Star Wars came out. Yeah, and, and sci-fi they, they became the hot genre. Yeah. Yeah, and and it couldn't be greenlit fast enough. I think that's definitely a component of this is that it was this was always going to be it was it was a studio film and this was at the same time when Hollywood was changing this is one probably one of those first films and they they say it in the behind the scenes thing I know I keep referencing it I'll link to it in the show notes there's really no name for it folks I can't say it doesn't have a documentary name it's not like waking sleeping beauty I can't just give well, it a that's name a, it's just that's a good point that is true the YouTube video is called what alien behind the scenes part one and part two <laughs> yeah I think it has it has a name because I know there. Every single one of the original, well, original four Alien films has one of these corresponding documentaries, and I think for the third one, for Alien Cubed, it's called something like Rape and Wreckage. Mm. That was the original name for it, and they changed it for the Blu-ray release to like, I, I forget what it was, like uh, Carnage and Wreckage? Yeah, no, sure that's Marisha what it was. Hargate had something to say about that name. <laughs> that's what it was. It was, it was called Carnage and Rape. Then they changed it to Carnage and Wreckage, I think, on the Blu-ray okay, release. Okay. Um, yeah, because I have that DVD still. I remember. I remember when I read that like factoid. I went, "Wait, there's no way they actually used the word rape like in 2003." And I put the DVD in, and it actually uses the word rape. And I'm like, "Wow, talk <laughs> about e- even back in 2012 when I got this set." I'm like, "Wow, times were different nine years ago." Um, yeah, yeah, that's um. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that's one of those things where it had a name. I don't know what it is. Doesn't matter if I called it by that, it would just confuse people. But they like they say that like on set, Ridley Scott was harassed by these studio executives. Yep, they were they were up his ass, and like that's nothing that's new. That's why when you hear things even nowadays about Hollywood movie making, and maybe it's, oh god, I've been wanting to, I've been wanting to tell this antidote forever, ever, ever. I think I've been wanting to say on the Star Wars podcast, so I'm so glad I get to tell it now. And it actually works because it's a David Venture story. He was the director nice. of Alien Cubed. David Venture does stories and cinematities. Fuck you, Star Wars podcast. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> that David Fincher does this thing. I've read that he he's done it more than once. I don't think he does it as much now. Now that like it's a thing that people talk about online, that he'll go to film colleges or like more like your NYU's, your your Columbia's, USC, sure. and he'll do this thing where like it'll be a Q and A with him. And someone will get up and be like, okay, Mr. Fincher, my question is, he'd be like, shut the fuck up and sit down. And the person, <laughs> like, and the person will just like, like, like turn right in the face and sit down. And he'll like motion for them to stand up again. He goes, how you dealt, like, how you deal with that is going to dictate how successful you are. Because wow. every single day as a filmmaker, the studio, producers, someone will tell you that indirectly, even some ways directly, every single moment of the day when you're trying to make a movie, and you have to be willing to push back. And he, and that's like one of those things where you can, like if, you have, if you're a filmmaker or any artist with a vision, you can never, not that you can't compromise, but you cannot let yourself be shut down by these people. Exactly. And, and that's why like you hear stories about how like in 1978 Ridley Scott was putting up with this. And then 40 years, 40 plus years later, you have directors that are still taking it up the ass from Hollywood and have not learned that lesson of like you have to learn to compromise, yeah. but you cannot bend over every single time they want you. Yeah, 100 percent. That's and that's, that's really where I, deep. I like that. I like that for sure. Yeah, I love. I've been wanting to tell that story for a while now. I'm glad I finally had the perfect opportunity to do it in, in, in a sense where it makes sense. The context is there. Um, but yeah, no. But going back though, like that's the thing about Ridley Scott. He was able to hold his ground, and that's where. I, and obviously, Ridley Scott held his ground in more ways than one because he pretty much, not as much now, but for the last twenty years, he's run the tables on yeah. pretty much anything he wants to do. Like the only reason why. <laughs> he was making it wasn't until the Disney sale of Fox that he was making more alien sequels. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about that in my research on Prometheus and Covenant. Yep. Like I'm making five more sequels to Covenant. It's like, oh no. Like, oh no. Keep keep Ridley <laughs> Scott away from the cameras. Oh yeah. Like like we said in our Blade Runner episode, he is insane. <laughs> yes, he is. Oh, right on, right on. I dig it. I think I, I do want to get more into the behind the scenes stuff um, because you know as we said I think at the start uh, you watched it Rob only watched some of it more of the writing and the Dan O'Bannon stuff which I'm I know Zach wants to get into um, just just kind of to tie out my thought I guess when I asked you the question about that that um, the birthing aspect the impregnation aspect of this movie that's kind of where when I something I wanted to bring up is that when I first watched this movie, you know, the first kind of few years that I started watching it, even though I loved it, I always had an issue with that final little scene where Sigourney Weaver Ripley gets onto the escape pod, but then she thinks she's safe, but the aliens on there as well. And there was a good part of me at the start of my history with this movie where I thought, mm, you know, what's, what's the point of that? Like, why not just make the escape, the escape? And, and but now, as I've come to watch this movie and love it even more, and think it's you know perfect, I I think that it's very necessary that last you know she's on the escape pod, the aliens there with her, and you have to get that whole you know get it out of the airlock type of thing because of one specific shot when she realizes the aliens there, um, she gets half naked, and I guess you know quick quick aside, Sigourney Weaver's 1979 bod is tight. She is good looking. When she gets into the spacesuit and, you know, she's, she's formulating this plan to get the alien out of the airlock and she's already put Jonesy in the, uh, the cryo-sleep thing, which I don't know if a cryo-sleep thing is made for cats, but fuck it. 
when she is ready to open the airlock, Ripley turns away from the alien. Like, she, she faces the other way. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that. I've come to love that scene because I think it is the encapsulation of this, you know, bringing life into the world motif. That both of these characters were birthed whether it be Ripley from a human, she's somebody's daughter, or whether it be the alien from the stomach of John Hurt, uh, Kane, they are both birthed, and I would imagine there's, and or not imagine, but we know that the species are capable of bringing more life. And it's almost like, as the woman, as Ripley being the lead of this, as I said before, it works so well to this motif, it's a realization that she knows it. She knows that this xenomorph is it could be a, a woman to some extent, a female of the species. But only one of them can survive because there are disturbances within each other's natural processes because of the other. They can't survive simultaneously. And I wanted to pitch that to you and get your thought on that, not only that shot, but your thought on that scene that, you know, we think everything's okay, but oh no, the alien's still here. That, that kind of escape pod sequence. So what did you think about that? Do you think that's kind of tacked on, or do you think it fits with the motif of the movie? Uh, no, it, it's there to get an additional rise out of the audience. It's, it, it, it's there to serve a purpose. Um, it's, it's purposefully tacked on, if that makes any sense. Um, um, no, it's, it's woven into the fabric of the film quite well. I, to- I do also think that the, the whole scene, without the her turning away aspect, which we'll get to next, I do think that the final shot of the movie is one of the most unnerving and purely beautiful things in film when, you know, Ripley is like, you know, uh, captain's log, star date, you know, whatever she says. Um, and it's her sleeping face fading away into the stars. I love that because even though she's beaten this one force of the alien of the xenomorph, she still has to face the fear of the void of space. And I love that end to the movie where, yes, she's gotten rid of one obstacle but she's still what i think they say in the movie 10 months away from getting back to earth and who knows how long that could be now that she's on this escape pod type of thing and yeah of course aliens deals with that but in terms of this movie encapsulated as one project that's amazing you might have beaten one obstacle but the next next obstacle is still right there in front of your face i love that yeah um I, 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 again, clearly that's a plot point that Jimmy C picks up like heavily in Aliens because that's oh, the big yeah. things that like, and they make fun of her. Isn't the like the first thirty minutes of Aliens where all the Marines are like, "Why'd you blow up your ship? Are you stupid? You blew up your ship!" And I'm like, "What the, like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? There was an alien on it. It killed everybody but, except by person." But I think that's the thing that you're okay. I don't want to make the conversation about aliens, but I think that's a thing where you kind of mock the film for of all these colonial Marines yes. taking their firearms out and they're not supposed to. Is that they're going like that's the clever juxtaposition of Jimmy C of these characters. You've got all these space Marines that are the badass of the badass, which I didn't even say at one point in the film. And they get I think even Bill Paxton's characters, like we got our asses handed to us. Game over, man, game over. Game over. What are we gonna do now? Game over, man. Yeah, yep. And I think that's the things that like it just shows you that you have these these people that are so badass and they get overwhelmed so quickly. And that's why they, they do make fun of Ripley. And we all know Ripley's telling the truth. So you're building up that level of suspense. 
because mm. you wait, you're waiting for the floor to drop out on all these people. And the fact that I think, again, the brilliance of Jimmy C is that Sigourney Weaver is the only, or Ellen Ripley is the only person that knows how to handle these things in any sort of effective way. And she is essentially, I don't want to say marooned, but she's in the little, what the little giant, little giant, the, the little contraption, like module on yeah, wheels yeah. and aliens. And that's what I mean, where she really can't do anything to help them. Until she eventually takes control of the thing and Paul Reiser gets mad at her and crashes into the wall. Um, <laughs> that, is, I do, that is a funny scene now that you remind me. I like that scene. Um, but no, I, I, I see what you're saying. And like I said, I'm with you. This shouldn't be a discussion on aliens. But, you know, this is this is if we did do an aliens bonus episode, this is where once again, like Blade Runner 2049 uh, you're making a good point, but I don't like that you're making a good point. <laughs> no, there, there we go again. Okay, I'll take it, folks. I'll take I'll take whatever brownie points I can get from Rob. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. But fundamental disagreement between Zach and I on Jimmy C. <laughs> yeah. Um. No, the ending. I again, the fact that she turns away from it is it's the alien gets sucked into the void. That I, I picked up on that too, but I didn't really know what sort of reason that's there. Mm. Maybe for the f- I, I don't know. Maybe for the fact that like this thing likes to attack everybody head on. Uh, I I didn't think about too that I didn't think about that much. So okay. I'm going okay. to you thought about more than I do. So I'm more than willing to defer to your uh, your analysis over my non-existent. Sure, one. but but you are saying that that last scene on the escape pod is you know the next the next kind of um, uh, blare of horror in this film, like the next jump scare where you think it's all safe, but we have that last scare type of thing. I don't. Uh, when it comes to the the alien being kind of uh, stowed away, or the yeah, fact yeah, yeah, getting... yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, because because oh. you know uh, uh, that, like I said, when I first saw this movie in the first few years, I thought that was kind of tacked on. Like I was like, why do we need this? Why do we need the alien? She thinks she beats the alien when we get the the huge scene of the ship blowing up, causing that cosmic wave in space. Why did we need it to be on the 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 skate pod? You know, it seemed almost like it was tacked on just for the scare factor. And of course, as I described, I think now it's it's very much to the motif of the movie is that, you know, um, something of the, the female essence pervades, but that that's kind of what I was getting at. Do you think it's just tacked on or do, are you okay with it is the question I'm asking, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, it works. It's effective. No, like I say, it's, yes. it's, it's okay. purposefully tacked on. It works. I can't knock some... It, sure, it's tacked on, but it works for what it's going for, so I can't yeah, knock it's, it it's, it's not effective. just... It's, so it's not just extra. I think we're in agreement there. It's not just extra, you know, to pad runtime. It, it, it works in the motif of the movie and the essence of the movie. Yeah. Um, I even, again, going back to that sequence at the end, too, I think that works even uh, another layer is the fact that, again, I was thinking about that and more the later alien films influenced this decision of mine. Is that the thing? I, I, okay, this is a question I'll ask Rob, then I'll answer my own question. The alien is stowed away on the escape craft, which I think has it has a name. I think it's called the Narcissus, which I, I kind of have to roll my eyes at. Some, um, something like that. I didn't write that down, but yeah, it definitely has a name. Yeah, it has one of those names. Yeah. And my thing is, do you think the alien, if Ripley hadn't noticed it, would have attacked her? Ooh, that's a good question. Or would it? So would it have attacked her, or would it just have stowed away and and lying in wait till it got to greater civilization? Um, I'm kind of tempted to say that it would have stowed away because up to the reveal that the alien is there, it seems that Ripley is getting ready to go into cryostasis again. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel that the alien has to realize that because it is a pure, intelligent creature, as Ian Holmes says, that it realizes that, well, if the one person I'm left with and her cat are going into cryosleep, I can lay in wait because it is intelligent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so what no. it's going for. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have. I think it was stowing away to be a stowaway. I don't think it would have been. It would have caused some, you know, grand attack. It's almost by accident that even Ripley realizes that it's there. Because because even the whole the whole point of that last bit is that the alien's kind of stuck in that little crevice. You know, it doesn't get out and run around. It's almost like it's it's been biding its time in this little crevice to make the journey. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what, again, I think the later films bring up the fact that, like, it'll stow away with the intention of it'll get to a larger population. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, that, I thought that was interesting. I think it's a very compelling part of the film. Again, it's another layer that you don't even realize until you rewatch this film how many times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, could, it could be very much on that first viewing be seen as just that horror film where the problem never goes away even though you think it does type of thing. Exactly. Oh man, fucking love it. So I do, I do want to make mention uh, another. Uh, Zach is going to roll his eyes moment um, when we get the great sequence of Ripley's the only one left. She tries. She wants to make the ship ship self destruct. She goes to the escape pod. The aliens in her way. She wants to go make the ship not self destruct. Um, we get the fail safe hatch with all those instructions on it. You know, she flips up that that thing with the levers and, and she's reading those instructions, trying to get everything to undo itself, but she can't, you know, the, the kind of the motivation of that sure. third act, the fail save hatch is directly homaged in the season two finale of lost, oh, which God. Zach knows is as Rob has said for many years, the greatest episode of television ever until he saw season five, episode 12 of the Sopranos. But oh, it is, it is legitimately almost identical. The fail safe hatch, not, not the actual hatch with the levers, but the lid, the lid that has instructions on it. Because in this movie, you know, she pops up the lid and it's like, if you want to do this, that, the other thing, follow these instructions in the season two finale of lost, when they don't push the button and shit's going real, Desmond opens the failsafe hatch and there's almost verbatim the same text on that hatch or lid in Lost. And I love that. I love that, you know, you get this tiny, well, maybe not tiny, but Damon Lindelof connection, as we'll talk about next sure. week, where you have that kind of homage to sci-fi, to this failsafe. And in Lost, there's no levers. It's a key that Desmond has. Uh, Henry Ian Cusick, the actor, he has to turn type of thing to dispel the electromagnetism. But I, I, you know, I saw Lost. I saw that episode of Lost before I saw Alien. And I love the fact that it's kind of just direct connection right there. It's beautiful to me. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, that's fine. I, I have no problem with you pulling references. That's, that's I th- fine. I thought you were going to say, Zach, it's like, okay, we're canceled. <laughs> no, I'm no, never not for talking that. to you again. It, Zach, not Zach for that, keeps a Rob. counter. He has a whiteboard in his room where every time I reference the Sopranos, Revolver, or Lost, he makes a mark. And when it gets to a certain number, he's just going to end the podcast. He's going he's gonna to blow up the restaurant, self destruct it. <laughs> Mother, you bitch! <laughs> oh, I, I love that whole scene you know like I said before it's show not tell where she's running back and forth through the ship trying to make 
it explode or not explode. That's awesome. And I think the last thing I wanted to talk to you about before we get into the behind the scenes with Dan O'Bannon is the probably most iconic scene in the film in terms of history of movies, the chestburster scene with John Hurt blowing up with the alien coming out of it. I, I, I know that it's, you know, this is, this is uh, the least hipster thing I've ever said. I have nothing bad to say about this scene. It's iconic for a reason because it's so fucking great. Like it's quick. It's to the point. We don't waste a lot of time. It, it does it and it, it gets the plot moving. It's, it's a perfect idea. And that's what I want to bring up. It's a perfect example of connective tissue in a film. And I know we've talked a lot about connective tissue, whether it be from the, the terrible nonsense of Charlie's Angels full throttle, where we had no <laughs> idea why scenes were happening and the connective tissue was barely there to the long drawn out nonsense of other things. I can't think of an example. This to me, this chestburster scene is not only getting at the essence of the horror of this movie, the thrillingness of this movie, but it makes for a great kind of midway point because it does happen at about, what, an hour, ten minutes or something where you know now what this movie is going to become because this little tiny baby alien just scoots across the dinner table and runs away. It's great. <laughs> well, even that sequence, that like I, again, it's been ruined and parodied so many times now. I know in uh, our Blade Runner episode, I mentioned that uh, it's parodied in Spaceballs when uh, the alien busts out of someone's stomach in a diner and sings, Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my ragtime gal. (laughs) Well, I think even in um, Toy Story, when they're in Pizza Planet, like Sid is like playing one of those like uh, whack-a-mole games and it's an alien popping out of a spaceman's chest. Whoa, real? Uh, Wow. I haven't haven't seen Toy Story in fucking years but uh I'll, wow okay i i didn't remember I, that but right i on. could be wrong but i think that's a thing because i'm being like oh my god and it's one of those things that no parents gonna pick up on that and if they do they're not gonna care like if you get the reference you'd be like whatever sure sure okay right right on but yeah i get i guess um you know the, the the I wanted to bring it up because I think that this is a scene that deserves the credit it gets, and that might be something rare for Cinemodities or, or Rob in general. Uh, he's usually the one to hate on popular things for good reason, you know, not just hipster reasons because you know blah blah blah. Uh, but I, I wanted to get your opinion. Do you do you think this scene deserves the credit it gets as such a great piece of filmmaking? Um. Uh, I I think it, it deserves what it gets. I think Does it's it definitely give you unique. a boner? I guess that's another way to, well, <laughs> to phrase it. <laughs> no, 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 no boners for that. Uh, may, maybe oh. I might shove a dirty mag. I might shove a dirty magazine down my throat, but that's for something else. Okay, some other okay. No, I love that chestburster scene is absolutely amazing. I, I it, think it no, gets- it's the problem though is that like I. I uh, that's the thing. I don't know how to judge it in the way that you're asking me to because it's always been. Okay. It's not a moment I got to experience. It's it's iconic moment, iconic cinema moment. Well, God, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh God, one of my favorite things of all time. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Chills. Sure. It's moment. I, I'm gonna look it up right now. But like I, it's it. That's how it is. It's always been a moment rather than a scene that adds to the movie. Oh, oh, I get what you're saying. I guess for comparison, the thing that comes to mind is, I don't know if it's on the AFI list, but I know a lot of people that I've talked to in my personal life, they say that, you know, 
the scene in Pulp Fiction when they have to give the um, adrenaline shot to Uma Thurman, they're like, wow, that's great. Like, that's such a fantastic scene. And I'm like, it's just suspenseful. Like, like, like that. that's it. Where, in comparison, I think the alien chestburster scene, I think it does add to the movie. It adds to that motif of the impregnation, the, the aftermath of that sexual violation, where the adrenaline scene is just like, well, yeah, of course. Like, what, what did you expect the movie to do? She has to live, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, looking at the list right now, it's number six on AF5's 100 Years, 100 Thrills. Oh, I think, okay. I think, I think I've mentioned this before how this was like one of those moments, one of these things that really was a formative experience for me because um, I, I saw a lot, I became aware of a lot of movies through this before yes. I ever actually saw them. Like, this is how I was introduced to Jaws, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs, French Connection. Like the list goes, King Kong, like the list goes on and on. But sure. rear, uh, rear Window, Vertigo, The Great Escape. This is all thanks to that uh, program they put on in uh, yeah, June 2001. Um, so, yeah, so that's, how, that's probably the first time I ever saw that. Okay. And that was, I have I, to I, ask I, I, if you have the list up, what is number one? I'm very interested. Uh, I'll give you a hint Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, Psycho? Yep, Psycho, the the shower curtain. Okay, the shower yep. murder scene. Okay, G- okay, guess what number? Well, that's the thing about this that maybe I it'd be interesting to discuss this. But I feel it would ultimately be a um. Oh God, there's a lot of commercials in this. There's some fantastic like pre not. You know what? We might end up talking about this when it comes to this the 2001 Fort Fort year. Yeah, because this this is this place. Nine eleven will be a major part of that conversation. <laughs> well, this is pre no. This is during the summer. This is June two thousand one. So this would be this was a, a major thing for me that summer. Okay, so we might have we might have to work that in there. This that okay? I'm gonna hold off on talking about this anymore because this might get worked into next next summer's thing. Perfect. Yeah, I'm wondering. I wonder if June twelfth is a uh, is a Monday for two thousand twenty one. Are you looking it up? Are you oh, right June, June 12th, 2021 is a Saturday, which is probably mm-hmm. when this aired, which is probably exactly when this aired. I mean, probably it's probably aired on a Saturday. June 21st is a Monday, though, and that's 12 backwards. That's weird. <laughs> this thing aired on June 12th. It was a Tuesday. That's weird. Oh, that is, yeah, that is strange. <laughs> um, Welcome to Cinemodities, where we look at a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, fo- no, every, everybody knows on this podcast, most of what I do revolves around anniversaries. anniversaries. Come on, yeah, it's been every, a long everybody... time since we've had one, yeah, yes. Um, yeah, so the, no, so that's probably the reason why I was never ever enamored with the chestburster scene because okay. I knew it was coming, I've always known it was coming at that moment, and that's nothing against the film. Yeah, that's sure, but that, sure. but that's kind of the problem with like. Everything we do now in the culture, we punch iconic moments in everybody's face. Like whether it be like, people have never seen Psycho before, and yet they know. Like even like you could show yeah. a a fifteen year old a parody of the Psycho shower curtain scene, and they'll get it. Yeah, you can right. you you can go on a beach, and you play the Jaws theme to a. Bu- bunch of teenagers and they'll know exactly what it means regardless of that whether they've seen the movie and half of them or probably more than half maybe the majority would say we're gonna need a bigger boat <laughs> you'd hope you'd hope but that's the point is that certain things transcend the co- transcend the films 
Yeah, and exactly. I, whereas you can't emulate the chestburster. I think I forget the. I, oh God, they do that. Rob still hasn't seen it, but they do that in Ready Player One. At oh. one point, one of the characters does something, and the chestburster pops through, and it's a joke. Obviously, uh, it's a reference because that film is referenced the film. But I mean that that is referenced the movie, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I I know. I think it's as potent as it's ever been. But I think considering that we've kind of I don't want to say diminished it a little bit, or the culture has diminished it in the last forty plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you'd hope other aspects of the film would start to get more attention. But it seems like the space jockey stuff got most of that in recent years over yeah. the the ass thing. Yeah. No, no, that's that's a good point you bring up for sure. Um, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. So I think um, I'm taking another quick look through my notes. I think that was the main stuff because we already talked about Tom Skerritt, all that stuff. I guess then, uh, Zach, I want to throw it over to you. And uh, uh, while Rob and and I think you to some extent have been gushing about this movie, um, we we got to talk about Dan O'Bannon, right? Your spirit animal. Damn (laughs) straight. He is he is great in like uh, in like the first hour, 15 hour, 30 that I saw this documentary. The stuff with him is the most interesting for sure. And I guess before we get into Dan O'Bannon, I did love the little uh, aside we get about H.R. Giger, where I think it was one of the first time they met H.R. Giger. And he was like, hey, you want to do opium? And they were like, why are you doing opium? He goes, because I'm scared of my art. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and i'm like that's the most hr giger thing i've ever heard <laughs> yeah that's I, i've okay i know I, at some point i wanted to do a behind the scenes documentary series on cinemodies and yes. that idea got shot down after rob kind of i don't want to say crapped on waking sleeping beauty but like well really yeah, I didn't, didn't, uh, like i think i said in that episode it's very informative but goddamn boring yeah <laughs> A hundred percent wrong, but I've come <laughs> to realize that I am very unique in my taste with this sort of stuff. Like sure. I love behind the scenes documentaries that are very matter of fact. I do not like the stupid, like, like the, I, there's a name for it. I think it's called like EPK, EPKs where it's like, it's that fluffy sort of behind the scenes content. Mm-hmm. I love when it's so just like deadpan, like almost like Ken Burns documentary esque. Yeah. I Here's love the facts. that. Take it in, like that's with, it. With, yeah, with the people, like minimal flourishes, no really, not, not a ton of music or stuff like that. Yeah. And I think even I think I told Rob that like I ordered the copy of Richard Stanley's Hardware, and I got angry at the fact that I didn't get the ninety minutes like making of documentary. I was yes, more angry I do, about. I that. did agree with you in that discussion because they fucked you hard on that. But I, yes, I know they what you're did. saying. But I didn't really care about the movie. I cared more about the behind-the-scenes documentary. Sure. And, and I didn't realize – this was back, I think, during Monstober. I remember I was telling my mother about um, – there was a behind-the-scenes like documentary about Psycho on the DVD. And one day we lost – like our cable went out. And I'm like, oh, do you want to watch this? And I put it on. After like 15 minutes, she was like, this is the most dry thing I've ever watched. <laughs> and I'm like, it's perfect for that reason. It's delightful. And – I at one point tying this back to Alien, that was my original intent. I wanted to do an entire behind the scenes documentary series, and this the Alien one was going to be the one that I was definitely was going to be the one I was going to pick for it. And I I think I've watched this documentary more than I've watched Alien because I just okay. I love I think I think there's so much drama here. Yeah, it's it's drama is not hard to come by. Anybody can tell you that when you put a bunch of different people in the room that all have inflated egos. Yeah. 
Yet it's fascinating to have drama and then get one of the one of the most iconic films of all time come out of it. Absolutely. And and that that is an interesting aspect of this behind the scenes stuff. And I think it for me personally, it works better because I love aliens so much. I'm I'm more interested in the behind the scenes where when you throw me, you know, the history of what the the post renaissance of Disney animation, I'm more like, well, okay, I get what you're saying, Zach, but I have no attachment to this. But if, if like that's a thing though, is that, like when I got that DVD set back in like 2007, it's like oh, 2017, not 2017, fifteen uh, year old me in 2007 sure. would have been like, what? Who cares? And then like over time, I realized oh. There's more to learn about how this movie operates on that level mm-hmm. than watching the film itself. And I think that's where I've kind and Rob can tell you both from Cinematis and even on Knights of Vader, you can understand how the sausage is made yeah. infinitely more from looking at that. It's kind of like you can stare at a painting as long as you want, and it can only tell you so much objectively about what the painter was thinking but if you look at the canvas they use in the paint and the paintbrush that will instruct you more on how the painting came together than what your own brain can and i think that's why i i appreciate this stuff more it's like the people that want to understand how movies work sure watching the movie will tell you a certain amount of things but i also think after a while you start to again what's the saying you stare into the abyss long enough the abyss stares into you you start to (laughs) lose your sense of grounding but that doesn't happen when you learn how this stuff is all made sure and this is black so long you think it's blue yep (laughs) (laughs) exactly and that's where i think the the behind the scenes stuff is almost more important than the film itself if you want to if you want to deconstruct it understand how it got there because like i said like i've told rob numerous times i know it shows up in another recording of ours like i love dan o'bannon he's possibly one of my favorite people to have ever existed because he's just he's just one of these people that clearly is bitter but he but he won like yes he is the he is listed forever as the writer of alien yet he's bitter about the process that got him there and i 110 percent relate to that yeah you're, you're not wrong and that that's what i found most interesting about this uh behind the scenes documentary i i was way more interested in the process of the inception of this film rather than the stuff about the special effects and how they made this that the other thing work because i think that's where you know, I think Zach and I disagree a little is I'm the one who say, hey, you have a finished product. That's what I'm looking at. While it's interesting to get that behind the scenes stuff, that doesn't really add much to the movie for me, where Zach, of course, is the opposite. Like he just said, you know, you you say the behind the scenes is more interesting than the actual film. But even at the same time, if I love a movie, I want to know how it came about. And that's the Dan O'Bannon side of this story with the writing and the fighting over the um, the rights and stuff like that or the um attribution i guess is the proper term for it and that yeah that's really cool stuff and i think zach and i do agree on uh dan o'bannon i think before we recorded you said the um the calm animosity or something like that i'm with you there It, it is beautiful he's a he's a character that lends himself to great documentary uh factoids or you know uh stories probably is a better less uh uh, detrimental term than factoids stories. <laughs> oh, definitely. 
Because even like some of the, I remember back in college, I think I told Rob this in, before we started recording, is that like there was this book I remember I had to read. And it was about like a lot of like genre stuff of like the 70s and how a lot of this stuff got made. Mm-hmm. And there's a portion of that book. And I, I, it's funny, I just, I just found it again yesterday going through a box of like bo- books looking for a different book. And there's a whole section about Daniel Bannon and just kind of like, because he really had quite the history in the 1970s. Because he starts off in film school with John, I kind of allied with John Carpenter. They make Dark yep. Star, which is kind of like a a campy, low rent version of what Alien would become. Again, it was a comedy, it was a spoof. And yeah, that's and Dan- that's how Dan O'Bannon describes it. He's like, I wanted to make Dark Star, but more horror than comedy. Yeah, exactly. And then John Carpenter eventually, with his huge ego, kicked Dan O'Bannon to the curb. And Dan O'Bannon was kind of there wallowing in his own misery. And he gets the call from Alejandro Jodorowsky. And even though we delved into this like a year and a half ago now, it's the notion of if it, like, again, it really can't be overstated how much influence that move, that production the failed production of jodorowsky's dune the actual failed movie not the documentary the seismic impact it had on the industry that's where this documentary when i started watching it i'm like okay you know i'm gonna watch a documentary maybe learn some cool stuff it starts going and like two minutes in you get dan o'bannon go i got a call from paris france from this guy jodorowsky and i'm like oh hold the fuck up like that now i'm intrigued <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly it, it's it's i don't know where to begin because i think even the jodorowsky's dune movie documentary doesn't even like cover how much it, they, they, they mention yeah. it though but they don't really delve into it in any sort of meaningful way just the sheer impact like you don't get alien without jodorowsky's dune yeah and i think we even talked about that in our um, Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune episode back in the Movies That Never Were series where, you know, we get that influence or not influence, but rather the involvement of H.R. Giger. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's you get all this stuff. You really again, I again, I, I, I think less is more when it comes to me kind of doing this in this level of of sort of conversation. And yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. You really cannot, because I think even, uh, it's on the Blu-ray that I have. It's supplemental content to the documentary. They call it, I think, supplemental pods. For some reason, they have some <laughs> term for it. Okay. And they talk about it. Is that like even beyond just Alien? I don't think you would have gotten Star Wars without Jodorowsky's Dune. Because I know in that documentary they talk about how there was that giant, just like like a tome of a book that yes. laid out the entire concept art of the film. And one of the people they interview in this behind-the-scenes documentary, in the supplemental material, they say that like that movie's production influenced science fiction movies trying to be made at that point. And you mm. keep in mind that like all that was going on like in 73-74. And Lucas didn't really start doing Star Warsy stuff until that time. And as we all know... With Lucas had his connections, like not huge connections, but he had his connection with Francis Ford Coppola, and Coppola had all of his connections at the studios. So it's not hard to believe that Lucas would have seen something like that book at some point, even if it was on somebody's desk. He just kind of looked at it and been like, "Huh, maybe this is something that I need to do if I want to get my like. I'm going to learn from the mistakes that, that these people did." Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of unprecedented. I'm agreeing with you in the sense it's unprecedented. Uh, how much influence that has or had that we don't really know about. Yeah. 
that's like that's that's the thing about and that. Just, like, just we, to think, if they paid, if they paid Salvador Dali a million dollars an hour, we could have had that movie. <laughs> so close. So close. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like that's one of those things where it's like I think Jodorowsky's Doom was always gonna be doomed. Um again, it's gonna be much like last week's episode, it's gonna be fascinating to see what Denis Villeneuve does with it. Just yeah, for the sake oh, of that, like just yeah. it's just for the sake of like it's one of those productions that it's kinda like, oh God, it's um oh god, was it who's who's the Greek god that's always trying to climb up the mountain with the stone and, and falls oh, back uh, down? Sisyphus, I believe. Yes, exactly. And that's what Dune is. It's 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 doomed. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like there's there's no good way this story ends. Like I mm-hmm. hope it does well. I don't want anyone to ever fail, but yeah, you get my point. Everybody gets my point. Home. Where are my feelings? <laughs> there we go. Two weeks in a row, folks. We need we need uh, the only thing I want is well now with this being said in the new Dune movie if it doesn't get pushed back who knows with um, yes. if we break quarantine we're all doomed. Uh, <laughs> Um, I hope that we get where are my feelings. I hope that we get the creature in the jar. Like like the best part about Dune, David Lynch's Dune is that opening scene where there's that weird worm thing in the in the aquarium at the beginning. I love that. Oh yeah. And and I hope like Jodorowsky, he 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 deserves a cameo in Denis Villeneuve's Dune, right? <laughs> like just a small little thing, you know, where he's He's driving a car or a spaceship or something like that, or he's uh, grasping for spice. I think that would be a nice touch. I, I don't think he wants any parts of it. I think he sees that's, it. I, I, that's he's, the he's other side be, of the coin. Shorterowski. He's an asshole. Yeah. As from our our episode, I described why I think he's an asshole. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's it. it yeah. I don't know. I think I think he's still probably annoyed by it because I think that part of him is like feels like so many people stole from him. Yeah, like he they like in that documentary even mentioned the fact that like so much of that stuff is borrowed out of stuff. Yeah, I I think we talked about it last week, and I don't know this will probably get cut out. But who who's playing Paul Atreides? Is it Timothy Chalamet? Yeah, in the new Dune. Okay, I think okay. it is. No, nowhere near as good as uh, Special Agent Dale Cooper. <laughs> So I guess yeah. uh, Alien. was there any um, other background stuff with the writing or anything you want to talk about? You know, I oh. and kind of the part I didn't watch was the special effects half. I watched more of the inception of the script and screenplay. Was there anything else that you thought might be beneficial to our Alien discussion? There is one thing. It's in the supplemental stuff at the very end. Oh, sure. In that Dan O'Bannon talks about because it's a big portion because you can tell there's animosity between Dan O'Bannon and the three producers and everybody name, else. <laughs> no, because I think Dan O'Bannon got like, he got along with all the artists. He's the one who brought the artists on board. So like, you, I think I think Ridley Scott gave him credit. As long as okay. I don't think as long as Dan O'Bannon didn't get into Ridley Scott's way, which I don't think that was Dan O'Bannon's intent at that point. He left them alone. Um, but no, the three producers, Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill. And as we know that Walter Hill doesn't even show up in this documentary where everybody else, I pretty much everybody else shows up. Yeah. I, I, that I'm glad you bring that up. Cause that was something I was interested in because when they get to his part in the beginning with the writing, you know, you get, you cut to so many people in their interviews and he's not one of them. Yeah. And that's, 
like you can tell there's a lot. I think it's Gordon Carroll. He's the one, he's the guy with the deep voice. Oh, and yeah. he, he, all he does is call about how crappy the script was. Oh, the script looks was like so an engineer. Cra- yeah. He looks like one of the engineers, the bald dude with the chiseled jawline. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This was shitty. I hated it. I read it. I hated it. And then he get, and what he even says something at the start where he, he, he reads like, he says he reads half of it. And he goes, this is stupid. And I'm like, well, that means you're stupid. And then he contacts somebody who goes, no, read the rest of it. And he's like, okay, this is a little less stupid than I thought. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> what? I, I, yeah, I know. It comes across very arrogant, egotistical. Yes, yes. And I think, and the funny thing is that, like, this was a production company. Clearly, they bought it because they saw potential in it. Yeah. And this is where... And this is where you have to, like, if you understand how Hollywood works, you have to side with Daniel Bannon, even though he's very, like, low-key hostile in, <laughs> in his interview, in that like, he got burned with John Carpenter, then he has he gets burned with Jodorowsky, then he has this million-dollar idea, and people try to take it away from him. Yep. And that's what these people are trying to do. He even says that, like, the, first, the easiest thing you do is you take the script and you change all the characters' names. That's the, that's the easiest way to put your own stamp on it. And and this supplemental thing, I would like. I don't think it's that long of a clip. I think it, but I think it's still like five or six minutes long, which is almost too long for a clip. He talks about how after the film was released, it came out that Walter Hill and again I forget who, like David Geiler and all them tried to get the the, the screenplay credit. Mm-hmm. And he's like 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 a solely that with Daniel Band's name taken off, yeah. and he goes. And he goes, I, he goes, I was always willing to share the credit with them because they bruised my script and I never want the blame for the bad parts in it. Mm-hmm. So when the dumb stuff happens, I can always point to them and say they did, but they were threatening that he goes, I called up Walter Hill and said, like, what's going to happen? Like, I, it's like, what are you trying to do? And he goes, I'll always remember this to the day I die. Walter Hill said to me, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And he goes, at this point, no. And so he he went to arbitration and got unilateral credit. And he goes, on any other circumstance, I would have given them half. But after learning how they like after how they treated me, this is war. And there is there's nothing, there's nothing fair in war. And that's where he goes, I took all credit for this. And he goes, a couple of years later, I started getting like hearing like gossip around town that people were saying I had stolen eyes and Daniel Bannon stole had stolen credit from Walter Hill. So he goes, I called up Walter Hill again, threatened him with legal action. Then like five <laughs> to ten years later, I realized all this narrative started to change. And at that moment, I fell in love with Dan O'Bannon. I, I I'm I'm with you, you know. It's you can be um, I, I guess just from my personal experience in the academic publication world, it's like, sure, you know, there there is discussion about who gets, based on what you do, who gets a name as an author on a paper. And I am totally willing to include more people than, than, than not, because if you did something, you deserve some credit. But if you're going to fight to get that removed, I'm going to fight back to make sure that the credit is given where it's due. And I, I can't disagree with Dan O'Bannon. And that's where I'm with you, Zach. Like, you know, you can only push a nice man so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially after someone who's been burned so many times, like think about Dan O'Bannon is still part of Jodorowsky's doom too. You do all that work and you have people again, like I get the adage of that. uh, We sit on the shoulders of giants, but it's the notion that you go through all that work. You try to be so profound and different, even though we don't like Jodorowsky as a, as a person, when it came to what he was trying to attempt with his Dune incarnation was unparalleled at the time. 
Uh, absolutely. So if you think about it, if you were part of that brain trust at the time, you can't blame him for being that cynical because he, he was. He was burned numerous times. No, yeah, and absolutely. And I don't even think it's cynical. I think it's um, owning up to, uh, you know, getting what's rightfully yours. Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess you should tell people that didn't. Dan O'Bannon passed away. He's been dead now for over ten years. Yep, he died December seventeenth, two thousand nine. Um, at sixty three years old, he was not an old man. Despite the fact that in the documentary, he he looks like he's about like seventy five. Yeah, in reality, <laughs> he's not in looking reality, great. Yeah, yeah. And in reality, he was only like in his mid fifties. Um, but yeah, and he also did things too. Apparently, he did work on Star Wars. Um. He he directed Return of the Living Dead, which I'm not sure if Rob's ever seen. I uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't. Rem- I don't recall. I, if that's the one, I I think I've seen this one. Yep, yep. It's the one with the tar the tar zombie. Yep, it's pretty good. It's pretty good for what it is. Um, it's not okay. great, but it definitely stands out. I, I think Rob would like it. It has possibly one of the greatest uh, special effects of all time in it. Um, he also, uh, he worked on uh, Heavy Metal, the, the animated film, and oh, Total Recall. Total oh, Recall. Love me a Total Recall. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks. <laughs> See you at the party, Richter. <laughs> See you at the party, Richter. Kuwait. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm with you completely about Dan O'Bannon. It's, um, you know, I think it's someone... Um, at least, you know, in even though I'm not in the movie industry, but I am in a field where, you know, you need to fight for the credit that is due to you. I appreciate that argument uh, that he presents a lot more because you're absolutely right. Is that, you know, when where does it stop? You can't just give everybody everything. You have to fight for your piece of the pie. Absolutely. Exactly. But yeah, I think that's pretty much it for Dan O'Bannon stuff. I, mean, I could talk about him forever. And like, I think, and you know, Rob, we'll start the entire like two and a half hour long documentary here. <laughs> well, well, I think after the Paul Bartel series where I was putting in literal like four minute clips of musical numbers from movies, we, we can just do whatever we want at this point. Because, <laughs> baby, you bring out the beast in me. <laughs> oh, come on, Rob. You got to see it right. You got to do the right inflection. Cause baby, you bring out the beast in me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's right. Oh, you're the cat's meow. Meow. That's a Jonesy clip right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on, Rob. Jonesy makes one noise. Meow. Meow. <laughs> I do say this is another great moment when when Harry Dean Stanton is getting eaten by the alien, Our and you see the reveal of the alien. Yeah. Yeah, and you see like. I don't want to say reflection, but like kind of like the they have the light on the cat's face and the cat's just looking up like in the corner. That's a great that's like for using an animal. Yep. Yeah. That's some perfect editing in that segment for sure. Yeah. It's 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 folks, there's a lot more to this movie than what we can ever talk about. Like this this could genuinely be its own series if we wanted to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh and, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, now you're making me think that, you know, our next series, four episodes, or sorry, 16 episodes straight of Revolver, we might be able to do Revolver and then Alien, then Revolver, then Alien, then Revolver, then Alien. <laughs> Tune in next week for Revolver. <laughs> oh, God. The only way you get smarter, Zach, is by playing a smarter opponent. Did you know that? <laughs> 
Yes, Rob. All right. Well, I think uh, with all that being said, if you didn't have any else, any scenes or behind the scenes stuff to point out, I think we're ready for our questions. Uh, what do you say? I think so. Okay. So, of course, we got to start uh, with our cinematics and late night. I think this is no surprise. Uh, Rob, for cinematics, is going to be fuck yes for late night. I don't know why I wrote this. Uh, well, I know why I wrote the whole sentence, but the sentence starts with the same thing twice. Really? For late, yeah. For late night, I wrote a hundred percent times, a hundred percent times. I swear to God, if anyone hasn't seen it, I will force them to watch it. So I think we're getting back to the oh, good old. If you got somebody in your clutches, if you're able to, you know, do the Ludovico technique from uh, Clockwork Orange, you gotta watch this movie. So I'm going fuck yes to both Cinemodities and Late Night. Because Late Night, I, I love it. People should see it. And we're going to get great conversation. I think just for the fact that, you know, whether or not someone's seen it before, we're going to be able to talk about that uh, male sexual violation aspect. And I think that's a great fertile ground for discussion. But Cinemodities as well, uh, th this is one of the movies I consider to be perfect and glorious sci-fi. And that's rare. So... Yes to both. What what say you, Zach? Oh, without a doubt. Um, it's it's a weird ass movie that's somehow been able to become a classic. I cannot think of another movie that's just as strange as this that somehow has transcended to that level. Sure. Um, it elevated the genre in the sci fi it, it created a new blend of sci fi horror that to this day I don't think has ever been really touched in any sort of meaningful way. Yep. Um until, yeah, they're, they're so Prometheus, you mean. Oh jeez, no, no, <laughs> hard no. I like Prometheus, but no. Um, wait until Rob learns about the phrase "the Prometheus school of running away from things," where if something is running away from you, you run in a direct line behind it or in front of it. Um, <laughs> pouring out for Charlize Theron, folks. Theron. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at one point, like when Cinema Sins first started, they actually sold T-shirts that said a. Uh, you know they have like those college sweatshirts say like property of or like oh, yeah. all that stuff and it was and one of them was like property of the Prometheus school of running away from things oh jeez okay <laughs> that hey, hey, cinema you know, sense wasn't awful I, like uh, they weren't horrible entirely not not to cut you off I know we've talked about cinema sins on this podcast before I know you mentioned it earlier in this recording and I bit my tongue I I guess it should be on this podcast because we always I think it, it's uh it, it's related to Doctor Sleep. Unfortunately, I watched the Cinema Sins episode on Doctor Sleep, and I really I did because I needed to know one thing, and uh, I uh -oh. I uh -oh. I am literally I I ripped some of my hair out. I wanted to gouge my eyes and ears. They removed a sin for the Olman's office scene. They Did said they really? it was an amazing piece of filmmaking, and they removed a sin. And I stopped the video at that point. I think there was literally like seven minutes to go. I turned my TV off. I screamed a little bit. And then I probably drank alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I did following that, but yes. He, he red, ingested something that would certainly red, help. We now bring, have Red Letter Media, which I don't think we said on this podcast, I think is a blight on film criticism. We have them calling the Stuart Ullman's office scene in Dr. Sleep subtle filmmaking, and now we have Cinema Sins removing a sin because of how good that scene is. And I guess my question to you is, Zach, why is the world so fucked up? 
I, 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 I could have asked, are we wrong? But that's not the case. We're no. right. We're Why right. is the no. world so fucked up? <laughs> I think I, 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 I think we've mentioned this before. To like, I don't think any piece of media should ever be extinguished or excised from existence. Mm-hmm. Even like the most like horrible, heinous like media. But I think I have to make an exception for Doctor Sleep because, as I said in our episode, its existence comes from a place of hatred. It's yes. it's inherently like it, it's its origin is evil. It only exists because Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's film so much. Mm-hmm. And again, I really wish the Kubrick estate would have said no. I really wish they would have said no. We're not. I know they have that power. I know. I just oh, do. Oh yeah, of course. They have the power, and they signed something to let them let Warner Brothers use that film again in their. And again, I maybe maybe something profound happens in that moment, Rob. Maybe there's some like answer to life in that Stuart Ullman scene, much like in Room Two Thirty Seven. Maybe if we squint our eyes like enough, we'll see what <laughs> makes people just forget about how awful that moment is. Because, folks, I know it's been like what, what six months since that came out. Yeah, we talked about yeah, it. Yeah. Maybe a little bit longer by the time this episode is released. I like I have access to the three hour cut. And I never want to watch it. Me too. I, if, if people, I don't know. If pe- you know what that is? The three-hour cut of Doctor Sleep is the equivalent of The Wolf of Wall Street, where toward the end, where DiCaprio has like the baggy fill, like like the the bag of coke hidden in a couch cushion, like like <laughs> upholstered into the couch cushion. It's yep. there, but I hope I never reach a point where I need it. Yeah, one. I guess just to kind of make it full circle, one of my favorite answers to our uh, snacks question. Is when we discussed Dr. Sleep, I will never forget when we got to snacks for Dr. Sleep, I said, I hate this movie so much, it deserves no part of our restaurant. <laughs> yes. And I'm pretty sure in the spreadsheet, it says, Rob says no under the snacks <laughs> portion. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure your response is a cyanide pill. <laughs> no, it's the uh, axe to the groin. The axe to the groin. Oh, that's right. Yes. Nicking the femoral artery to make you bleed out. Yes, that's right. Oh, God. Yeah. So um, if you like Dr. Sleep, don't email us. Never contact us again. <laughs> we don't want to know why. End of story. <laughs> you know what I would love to do, though? I would love to have a debate with somebody about the merits of Dr. Sleep. I think because I think I could, could easily could do that. Yeah, you could do that better than I could. It would end in violence with me. <laughs> I would not be I would not be level headed during that discussion. I think because I don't think there's any objective reason to praise that film. I genuinely don't. I don't think, like, I don't like, not that you. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any objective reason to appraise that film. I yep, don't yep. think there is. You're I think wrong. you can say you like certain parts of it, though. But it'd be a hundred. It'd be a subjective take through and through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of things that aren't subjective takes through and through, I guess snacks for the restaurant, Rob. When it comes, yeah. To Alien. So just to just to make sure. Um, because I'm thinking of my editing this episode. You're saying absolutely to both oh, cinematics yeah. yes. and late night. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Then, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're ready for, all for the reasons snacks. That some. We're ready for snacks. And I think uh, uh, the I want to start with um, with something that I, I realized before the, right before this recording. Because, you know, of course, when I watch the movie, I do snacks as I'm going through it. Um, I have the same snack but written two times in different places in my notes. Oh, okay. And it is a Jonesy cat for the restaurant. 
I have oh. literally the words, a Jonesy cat for the restaurant, and then there's like two snacks that I list, and then I also put in all capitals the word Jonesy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, why not? Let's just have this little, uh, you know, orange cat running around, meowing, screaming at people, running from the alien. I think that'd be good fun, right? I think so. Okay. Uh, the other snacks that I have, uh, coffee, because it's the only oh, yeah. thing good on this ship. <laughs> um this is more of um something that i think we should do i i don't know if i think we have to experience it you know you and i as owners owners and operators before we put it on the menu um you know how ian holm ash the android his kind of lifeblood is that milky liquid Mm -hmm. i want to drink that milky liquid and I want to see, you know, if it's good, then we can put it on the menu. If it's not good, we don't. Or maybe the opposite. If it's good, we keep it for ourselves. If it's not good, we, we serve it. But I'm thinking, like, yeah, you know, let me some of that. Uh, I, I didn't watch that far into the documentary, but I, I would assume that this is some combination of water and glue to make a very white liquid. You know, like in cereal commercials, uh, the bowl of cereal isn't filled with milk. It's filled with glue because it really gives that shine on the camera. I, I want to drink that milky liquid and then maybe make the decision if it falls into our restaurant. What do you think? Oh, uh, yeah. It sounds like a Rob idea. <laughs> I like that. The last snack I have is I want us to, uh, whether it's just you and me, people we already hired, or we're going to hire somebody new, um, I want to start some genetic experiment in our restaurant so we can create eggs just like the alien eggs and in some sense a face hugger shouldn't you save that for the prometheus discussion shouldn't that be i think that should be back burn until till next week's because i I think that's really applicable uh, i uh i was kind of torn by this and maybe we'll talk about it again but without without the getting into the details the reason i want to do this which i think is okay to say in this episode is that i want to unleash this thing that we create on our employees if they don't do a good job and we and we genetically engineer it so that it impregnates one of our employees who's not doing a good job to create a chest burster alien that's going to do a better job like like i want something that's going to impregnate bad employees and make better employees that's what i'm saying and yeah you're right zach maybe this will have to be refined a little more when we talk about next week prometheus and alien covenant and really maybe finesse that idea for sure because that that's what we're about at the restaurant finesse yeah. right i can't can't even say that with a straight face straight, exactly <laughs> but those are my snacks um so what did you have other than a so you can't say jonesy cat because i said it twice no. so that one's gone all right <laughs> all right the first snack i want is i want whatever john hurt is eating before he gets chest bursted i don't oh. know what it is it looks like a spinach salad but it like i don't know what it is because at one point you see a pretty good shot of the bowl when he's like falling onto the table but it looks disgusting there's like, some noodles in it i think like it might be like there? a like uh, yeah i always thought it was kind of like a chow mein type of thing with noodles oh. and veggies oh okay i know what it is i want that i want that in the restaurant Okay. Um, okay. Then the next thing, I'm not sure if Rob got to this in the documentary. In they, they talk about with the ash scene. Opium. Opium. <laughs> you want to smoke opium, Zach? Because we're we're afraid of our creation. 
<laughs> maybe, maybe. Hey, oh my god, I just realized we could contact Daniel Bannon on Seance Modities. Oh, and, oh my god, and HR Giger and and HR Giger. Okay, so whoa, 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 this is the, this is the little like uh, uh, sandwich board we put outside the restaurant on certain nights. Okay. Tonight only, Seance Mahdi's HR Giger, smoke opium with him. <laughs> smoke opium with the ghost of HR Giger. I love it. I absolutely fucking love it. Uh, the peek behind the curtain I was gonna say is that um, uh, because I have made the the spreadsheet inaccessible to Zach. I don't know if he's seen this, but we do have a new tab in the spreadsheet <laughs> called Seance Modities Contacts, where we're keeping track of these. So this will get Good. added for sure when I edit this. I love it. Good. I can't believe I didn't think of that. I wasn't even thinking about Seance Modities. But you're right. Dan O'Bannon, H.R. Giger, Afterlife Opium Smoking, hell Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but again, going back to the behind the scenes stuff, I they talk about when they did the ass scene, they have him decapitated. They put like ranch, they put like yogurt in Ian Holmes' mouth. And apparently, by the time they they did take after take after take, half the yogurt was ranted. He got sick, so maybe uh, that's what we do. We get some ranted yogurt, um, <laughs> ranted yogurt. And then I think it's the best thing is that again, I don't know how far Rob got in the behind-the-scenes documentary, but Veronica Cartwright talks about Tom Scarry and John Hurt and how they're all, like, how they had to venture out onto, like, the planet in their costumes and how, like, they, they didn't put, like, air holes into them, so, like, they almost, like, like, asphyxiated themselves in those costumes until eventually somebody mm. drilled some holes into them. And how, like, John Hurt apparently had, like, a puddle of sweat in his boots once he was, like, done filming one take. So, <laughs> and then at one point, they actually took Ridley Scott's kids to do, like, like to make the the sets look bigger. They created like baby sized costumes and had his oh. kids walking around. And apparently, they didn't eventually start putting air holes into the costumes until Ridley Scott's kids pa passed out. So I would like to have like what they have at some McDonald's, where you have like the place where you can like walk around outside. But we have our own version of LV four two six and the derelict ship and the space jockey. And you, you and the kids have to wear costumes, but we don't put air holes. Huh? Uh, oh well, of course. I, I'm with you there. Absolutely. <laughs> Your kids will pass out. It will say that. It's just like It's just like for the kids. Alien, like Alien LV four two six experience, and then underneath, like in one of those, like um, oh god, like like jagged, like oh god, like uh, oh god, it's like the comic expressions that say wow, bang, but it's like the jagged. Like imagine like a very like early version of the Nickelodeon <laughs> logo, and it says your kids will not be able to breathe. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Rephrase that. Rephrase that. It says they will pass out. We gotta make it more concise. They will pass out. <laughs> when you say you know you get that that comic that like speech bubble or thought bubble like Nickelodeon, I'm just thinking we can we can boil this down to one word: the 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 spiky speech bubble to show excitement, yes. and it just says asphyxiation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I love it. I love it. And that's it. I think that's my my snacks for Alien. Well, I, I guess I, I have to ask you, Zach. Did you know that uh, Veronica Cartwright, who plays uh, Lambert in uh, um, Alien, she is in season seven, season seven, episode eight of Zvu. Of course, she is. Where uh, she's playing alongside the main guest star of Dean Kane. How about that? Yeah, that's not a good episode, though. That's not my second favorite episode, like the one with 
Tom Skerritt. That's, Skerritt. that's a bad episode. That's a bad. That's a bad episode where the guys e- Dean Kane is evil the whole way through, and uh, he he marries while he's in jail someone who is binge drinking and has liver failure just to get money from an insurance scam and and Veronica Cartwright plays the mother of the girl who's just crying the whole time and it's just oh it's 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 beautiful nonsense which is 98% of zoo episodes <laughs> uh, one man's beautiful nonsense is another man's trash <laughs> I I like that, Zach. You just said one Rob's beautiful nonsense is one Zach's trash. (laughs) That's great. Uh, I guess my favorite Veronica Cartwright memory is, or moment, is I love the ending of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like the first remake amongst like 30, where like she goes up to Donald Sutherland. She's like, whatever his name in the movie is. She's like, oh my God, he made it. He just does a... He like like, opens his mouth and points. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. And I want people to know that who knows by the time this goes out what further quarantine we'll be under. But I want everybody, if, you, if you're in public, I, I know you're not allowed to be in public anymore. You're not allowed to be born like, what, 85 feet next to well, somebody? Unless you're, unless you're going to a liquor store or a marijuana dispensary because those are essential yes. services. Yes, yes. <laughs> God bless America. Um, if you see, if anybody coughs or sneezes or sniffles, your job is to legit point at them and make the Donald Sutherland face at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> That's your job. Like, I'm not joking. Like, I went on the record today that, like, this is this is for real, folks. I'm not making this up. My mother was outside having a cigarette. And she saw two people walking down the street, which is happening a lot lately, and she yelled at them six feet apart, and they actually moved apart six feet. Ooh. So on top of that, I thought I thought it, you were going to say your mother pointed them and screamed, "They're here! They're here!" <laughs> <laughs> I know that's uh, a different, but different of body snatchers. But yes, <laughs> it's uh, I, I guess Rob, maybe next week, depending on what happens in this crazy banana republic world we live in, we might have to talk about, or maybe do a bonus episode on what would the Cinemati's restaurant's response to the Corona crisis be? Oh. Oh my God, Zach! You are going <laughs> to regret giving me that idea, <laughs> that, folks. I just dropped a megaton nuclear bomb on the podcast right now. That because now you just you just you hit the nail on the head. How how is the infinite void of abusing customers going to handle <laughs> customers? <laughs> I mean, we're gonna. Oh my. Jesus, the caviar glory hole is running through my head. Oh my god! <laughs> All right, folks, tell them keep keep it in your noggin for now, Rob. You have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, I think after this comes out, and um, you know, there there will be a few other bonus episodes in the pipeline that our audience might have heard that don't involve Zach. Zach knows I'm always willing to do a bonus episode with him about the restaurant because why shouldn't we record our board meetings? Right? <laughs> yes. Make the board meetings minutes public. <laughs> did, did you know when the time this comes out that uh, the episode, the bonus episode with me and Ben that you're not in, uh, I make mention of the fact that you are dealing with the police because of our bone pit in the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> did you know that, Zach? I told no. our audience that. And, of oh, course, you, you, you 
got everything, you know, out of the way. You know, you made that bone pit. Um, you convinced the police at least to leave us alone for another week, right? <laughs> mm. They're too they're too busy with everything else going on. Exactly. Oh, remember it's folks. Great. Remember, folks. The police can't arrest you if they keep more than six feet away from each other. It's a perfect legal remember, loophole. And also remember that the uh, Cinematics restaurant is a hundred percent real. <laughs> it is. <laughs> There's rumors that go around. We're the ones who birthed the virus. Yeah. Oh God. Oh it came God. From deep within, came from deep within the void. Yeah. When we when we uh, we had John Ratzenberger as the electrician break through the wall into a portal into another dimension, we unleashed the unleashed the virus. Yes, folks. You know and what, he Rob? said, "Ah, oh, it must be foreign made." <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, okay, I'm ready. All right, we're done. <laughs> All right, folks, we're not going to be able to top it from here. So, Rob, how are we going to end? This? You know, I just realized we didn't talk about the Jerry Goldsmith score at all. No, we didn't. We didn't talk about the amazing score that we have in this movie because I was waiting for Zach to ask me this question. How do we end this episode? And even in all of the lead up before we record, when Zach and I are talking off mic, I didn't bring this up because I was saving it for the recording. Zach. Did you see the YouTube video I sent you on Facebook last night? Zero no. by Space Hog. I know you saw it. It said it, 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 it gave me the check mark with seen. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, it mean it means that you acknowledged it. I don't know. It doesn't mean you clicked on it. But last night, when I was getting ready for this recording, I sent Zach a YouTube video, which is a live recording of the song Zeros by the band Space Hog. And so with what Zach is telling me, uh, he didn't watch it. Is that correct? Uh, does it count if I'm doing it right now? Well, no, you can do it right now. But I sent this to Zach because when I was getting ready for this recording, or recording finishing up my notes uh, last night, I said, well, wow, what do I want to do to end the music? And, and I was thinking, well, let's do some of the score from this movie. But it's very slow and methodically paced like the movie itself. And then I was thinking, well, let's do Englishman in New York by Sting. Because he says, I'm an alien. I'm a legal alien. But then I realized in the back of my head that the band Space Hog, which no longer exists, they have a song on their first album called Zeros. And it is one of, it's a great song. I, I was about to say one of my favorite songs of all time. I don't think it lives up to that hype exactly. But when I have researched Space Hog, because they kind of were a flash in the pan, they existed and fell apart, Zeros is actually inspired, the writing of it is inspired by the movie Alien. And really? I figured, well, hell, you know, the first line of Zeros is, I meant no harm in being born. And the member... Uh, the members of Space Hog that wrote this song, they have said in interviews that it is inspired by Alien, 
and the impregnation aspect that we've talked about a lot already in this recording. Really? So since it's a song that I love a lot, since it's a band that I love a lot that I'm very sad fell apart, um, I think we should play some zeros by Space Hog in reverse. And the last thing I want to say is that Zach has the link to this YouTube video. It's not an official audio video. It's not an official music video. It is someone filming this band back in the mid-2000s playing this song, whether it be on a phone or a camera, I don't know. But this person is clearly nowhere near the front of the crowd. And this is something that, that Jeremy and I have come to love is because you might watch this video and with how much I'm talking about it, maybe we'll put it in the show notes so you can see it as well. Or maybe I'll share it on Facebook or anything like that. Um, the person filming it, I would say that a good 60% of this video is just the backs of people's heads, like silhouette, darkened out, blocking the stage. And Jeremy and I have come to realize that whether or not this person realized it, they created one of the most artistic, self-videoed performances of music ever. Because the idea of this song, and of the movie Alien, is not as much what you do see, but what you don't see, and what is left up to the imagination. And there's some great visuals where you just get a peek of the basis through people's heads. You only see the drummer 50% through the song when he finally really comes in, and it's just kind of behind the scenes. This is one of the most amazing accidents in video history. Really? But long story short, as much as I love this, as much as Anne in Superiority Complex loves it, the song Zeros by Space Hog from their first album, Resident Alien, it is truly inspired by Alien, the movie. That's how they wrote it. That's where they came up with these lyrics. And I feel that we are going to play a little bit of it for you guys, maybe now or before. But we have to close with that in reverse. Because I love it. Zach now loves it. It's decreed. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what we got. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face once again. <laughs> Yeah.